Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's our DC Spotlight episode for the week of June 8th, 2021. So just a reminder that Rocky and I are going to go through the books. We've read most of the DC books for this week, and we're going to talk with full spoilers, talking about the events, talking about what we thought about the issues. Um, before we dive into that, I'll just say, oh, overall, a pretty strong week. I'm almost fondly thinking back to those weeks where we had only six or seven books to talk about instead of 11 last week, 10 this week. Uh, but it's for the most part, it's good stuff. Although I don't feel like it was quite as strong as as last week was. I don't know what what did you what did you think, Rogi? Uh, it wasn't. Um, yeah, well, last week was last week was a hard one to beat. It was pretty good. Uh, this was this is probably slightly less than last week, but uh, there's there's a couple that stood out for me. So overall, I'm still, you know, again, I'm still I'm still pleasantly surprised by by the by the quality of what DC is putting out. When I when I figure how depressed I was. <laughs> leading into future state and coming out of future state a little bit i was i'm i'm i still remain pleasantly surprised at how dc's managed to you know keep us entertained uh, uh despite despite a lot of uh concerns about AT&T takeover and editorial shakeups so you know fingers are still crossed and things are still going i think reasonably well yeah and i feel like uh we're not the only ones that that are thinking this way uh, there still seems to be a subset of fandom who's crapping on DC, saying their stuff's not any good, whatever. They're, they're still stuck sort of in the past. But I've seen a, a lot of creators and a lot of people on social media lately touting DC and, and specifically Tom Brevoort, you know, across the street at Marvel, uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, talking about how he's just caught up on a bunch of DC stuff, DC stuff and he feels like the stuff he's been reading lately feels like more – of old school DC than, than their stuff has felt like in a, in a long time. So I sort of agree with what he's saying. And uh, I think a lot of the people that are complaining about DC maybe haven't actually been spending time reading the books because, um, you know, we, we had plenty of criticism during Future State, but for the most part, I think these books have been really good lately and yeah. uh, and getting and getting better. So uh, let's go ahead and kick it off with Wonder Woman number 773. So this is written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Art is by Travis Moore. Colors are by Tamara Bonvillain. Letters by Pat Brousseau. And then there uh, there is the backup. We actually got the backup this time, unlike last, last time. Uh, it's written by Jordi Belair, who most people will know as a color artist. The art is by Paulina Ganeshaw. Colors by Kendall Good and letters by Becca Carey. Uh, so kick us off, Rocky. What did you think of uh, the main story, which is uh, After Worlds Part 4, and it sort of brings this first chapter of uh, Wonder Woman in the Infinite uh, Frontier era to a close? Uh, yeah, well, o overall, I have to say, uh, I think that, uh, you know, writers, uh, co-writers Becky Cloonan and uh, Michael W. Conrad, I, I think they gave us, I think they cheated a little bit here. I think we're being robbed of what a story that I was expecting to have a little bit more substance to it in the end. I thought they built a very rich world uh, uh, where they dived us into both Greek mythology, Roman mythology, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the Thor, the gods, uh, the Valkyrie carrying the the the, the the fallen soldiers into uh, uh, into uh, Valhalla, where they can celebrate. But uh, the mystery of why the Valkyrie are gone, you know, and Wonder Woman seeking the Valkyrie and and tricking the serpent uh, Nidhogg last issue to 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 
gain entrance to the Valkyrie and to, uh, to find out what's going on and, and, and all these battles and this rich character work, good character work, work that we got of, of Siegfried, her Wonder Woman's, uh, former or, I guess, lover slash fellow warrior and the early issues, uh, meeting Thor, uh, the, the beautiful art by Travis Moore. This was really building up to something. And I can't help but be a little bit disappointed with this ending, if I'm brutally honest. Um, <laughs> and the, the reason why I'm a little bit disappointed, because it's a little bit of a cheat. And and uh, obviously, I got to say that there, there definitely there's, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a spoiler, some spoilers here. And uh, the reality is that it's revealed that um, actually before I get that, I just want to give a shout out to the, the, these covers, man, the, the, the cover, the cardstock cover here is absolutely gorgeous. I don't know. I'm not even sure who draws it. Do you know who that <laughs> just fantastic? And there's a beautiful pride cover. It is DC pride week. We should mention that. And each cover DC comics does have a pride cover. In any event, yeah, yeah I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure that cardstock covers ju- just based on the art. It looks like Joshua Middleton. Which- yeah, actually, I think you're right. It is Joshua Middleton. Yeah. It's gorgeous, and yeah. and it, it shows Wonder Woman uh, holding uh, Siegfried, who she ultimately ends up uh, doing the uh, you know having some intimate time with at the end of this issue. It's good to see Wonder Woman get some love during Pride Week, <laughs> and it's with somebody of the opposite sex, which is a little bit different, but. <laughs> there you go. It's about free love. You can do whoever you like. In any event, this is called Afterworlds Part Four, and uh, this is this is actually a very well written issue. The dialogue is really good. What, what where I get a little bit disappointed is that it's ultimately revealed that the Valkyrie they just they didn't they 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 weren't being held captive. They weren't destroyed. They they weren't hiding or anything like that. They just quit. The Valkyrie just decided that they quit. They were tired. They got tired. Yeah. It's it's like, I don't know about you, but it was such a disappointment. I thought maybe there was going to be some enemy here or who is this mysterious figure that was guiding Diane through all this. And of course, we knew last issue was teasing. It's just Dead Man, Boston Brand. And and here it's just it's just very, very underwhelming. And and the whole thing here is resolved with with Wonder Woman just being, I guess, I guess she's being the diplomat. She's the peace negotiator. She negotiates an, a new arrangement between the Valkyrie and the the warriors, which are represented by Thor. And uh, they, and of course, there's the she represents. She takes it upon herself to represent uh, uh, the the living tree. Y- Yugdust- How do I say that? Yggdrasil, Yggdrasil, yeah, Yggdrasil, the the tree, and basically what's happened is that with the warriors not with the Valkyrie not taking the warriors who have died into uh, Valhalla, the warriors aren't bleeding, and so the blood of the warriors doesn't feed the Yggdrasil, the living tree, and if the tree doesn't get the blood, which is the nutrients, the tree won't be able to contain the serpent uh, Nagdal. Uh, who Wonder Woman tricked last issue, and if the serpent escapes, and that's the end of, I guess, I guess that's Ragnarok, or something. That's how I interpreted it. So it's very important that this cycle of life and death, that this cycle of warriors fighting and dying, and the Valkyrie taking the dead to celebrate in in Ragnarok, uh, or celebrate, pardon me, at Asgard and the afterlife and all that jazz. This is a cycle of life and death that's very very important, and so they. 
They negotiate a resolution at the end, and it's ultimately Wonder Woman who is using her diplomatic skills. So this is, if I'm going to give some props to Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, they have explored Wonder Woman's warrior aspect. And of course, Wonder Woman being the peaceful warrior, she's also a very good diplomat. And they try to explore that here too. And before we get there, we got some great battle scenes between Wonder Woman and Thor. <laughs> There's a particularly humorous scene where Wonder Woman, and I don't know if it's an indirect pot shot at Thor, but she takes his hammer and she crushes it. She makes, you know, she, she makes a mockery out of Thor's hammer. But in defense of Thor, he's not himself. Dr. Psycho created all these weapons, so they're not their actual weapons. It's not actually Thor's hammer. Uh, Dr. Dr. Psycho plays the dwarf who is psychologically and mentally manipulating all the warriors through through the weapons that he makes for them and so once he's defeated through the help of dead man and they can finally uh get their wits about them and negotiate this this treaty at the end between the valkyrie thor and what and uh and the the living tree agdestral and yeah, it's, you know, again, it wraps up very conveniently, and I think it's a little bit of a cheat, but I will say this. This is a nice self-contained story. I think for fans of Wonder Woman, you get you get everything here. You get mythology, you get Greek, you get uh, Roman, you get Wonder Woman at her... Uh, Wonder Woman at her best as a warrior, even without her powers. She slowly gains her powers at the end. Uh, you get... Those of you who like Dr. Psycho, you're getting a little bit of that. You even get Dead Man of all things. You, you, so this really does, it gives you sort of a modern day twist on the whole mythology angle. And I, I have to say, I, I think this was what we needed coming out of Death Metal. It was a nice, straightforward story, but it was fun. I had fun reading this. A little bit disappointed in the ending, but I mean, frankly, I've been so disappointed with Wonder Woman in the last few years. I'll take this. I'll take what I can get. It's still better than what I'm accustomed to. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I didn't because just because it it really felt like Michael W. Conrad and Becky Clinton were doing something fun, and it felt very epic. Um, you know, bringing all these different mythologies together, and to have the end be not a big you know there wasn't some big um, there wasn't some big bad basically. It was just the the Valkyrie themselves that were just tired, but but it felt so. Maybe it didn't feel quite as impactful in the end. Like this is going to be some long lasting story that you know builds upon the canon of DC or Wonder Woman or anything like that. But it did feel true to what was going on, and it did feel you know at least it brought in Doctor Psycho. I always say that Wonder Woman, especially for as long as she's been around, she has a woefully small and sort of unregarded rogues gallery so you know if somebody can come along and do a definitive run and build on that rogues gallery i mean you, when you think of wonder woman villains i guess you think of cersei and cheetah and Ares, and that's sort of it and so it makes it a little it makes it a little tougher at times to really take the hero of wonder woman seriously because she doesn't have the villains you know i think that's part of what makes batman so epic so anyway I, but you know, hearing you say that, it makes me realize it. But when I was reading it, I didn't realize it. So it must not have been really a consideration for me. Um, what I mostly got was, like you said, the fun of the story. And especially the over-the-top sort of 
behavior of Thor and, you know, the things that he's saying, he's, you know, he's, he's the Marvel version of Thor dialed up to 11. And <laughs> it is great, as you said, to see Wonder Woman sort of put him in his place when she crushes, <laughs> crushes his hammer. And so, yeah, I, I, I felt that it was a, a good story, a good palate cleanser, like you said, coming out of Future State and the Wonder Woman uh, story that was going on before. And also, the, it really it was all set up on that last page, right, for what's going forward. I mean, when you want to talk about epic and mythic and maybe really playing into the, the canon of DC and what's going on, seeing that final page with Themyscira in ruins and Diana saying, by the goddess, what's happened, you know, that that really teases something in, important to, to come, you know, and you wonder how much Dr. Psycho may have had to do with it or does have to do with it. Is he going to be sort of the, the big bad of, of this run? You know, Mariko Tamaki's run really leaned into the Maxwell Lord sort of aspect. And I guess you could consider him one of Wonder Woman's rogues, but again, it, it hasn't been established. I don't know what it is about Wonder Woman. She just doesn't have, you know, when you think about Batman or even Superman, they have those villains that you always associate with them. And, you know, there's certain eras that you think back on fondly. And I don't know, Wonder Woman just doesn't have that. It, and it's it's sort of frustrating and and baffling. You know, you, you even think about some of the, the Marvel characters that are more, I won't say well-known because Wonder Woman is known worldwide, but she doesn't have the same identity in the, in the comics that's well-established. Like, I think over at Marvel, Black Widow right? Who's somebody that, yeah, been around for a while, but not as long as Wonder Woman. But even her, even she has sort of more of a defined era, you know, or, or you can look at certain eras of her where you go, oh yeah, Black Widow when, you know, George Perez was doing it or, or what have you. Um, and Wonder Woman, it's just not that way. So that, that's kind of what I'm hoping. I've been waiting almost my whole life to get a, a real established run. I mean, you can think about the, the, Secret Agent Wonder Woman when she wasn't actually in the costume. You can think about the John Byrne era. Yeah. George Perez did have the era coming out of uh, of Crisis, obviously. And then the Gail Simone era. But it, even those, they're not real defined the way some of these other stories are. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm hoping. Yeah, this, this might not have been the most impactful in terms of the resolution of the story. But it is very well done, technically. I, I liked... Uh, meeting Siegfried, I could see him definitely coming back as a supporting character for for Wonder Woman, and and I thought overall it was it was done really well. The colors are spectacular, you know. It's a it's a certain palette that sort of reflects mm -hmm. being in this you know fantasy world of of Asgard and Valhalla. Um, so I think Tamara Bonvillain did a great job. And then when you talk about the line work of Travis Moore, I mean it's it's been spectacular from from start to finish. And the thing that was great about it is being in this sort of fantasy world you know so many interesting backgrounds when they're in valhalla with the the valkyries you know a lot of the backgrounds are are done by the color artists but then we're back in um in asgard or valhalla and and there's you know the inns and the backgrounds and the and the uh sort of nature part of it and then when diana confronts uh, psycho there's no background at all it's very much the white space of her mind which is really interesting so yeah, uh, as much as Travis Moore's art is spectacular, I almost, in terms of the character work, I almost think his backgrounds are where his art shines even more. And you just take a look at that last page with Themyscira and flames, and and know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, as far as the backup story, again, it, it 
feels a little bit out of place. Not not quite as much as I felt like at first, because ultimately I think the main story did end up being a little more lighthearted than I initially thought it would be. And so this sort of all ages young Diana story, it, it doesn't feel as disparate as it felt early on, but it still feels like it should be its own thing. Um, but I am enjoying it. It, it does get Diana's characterization, right? Especially for being a young version of Diana. And you can tell that she has sort of lessons to learn. She, uh, she's very much young and sees the world in black and white. And we know things are more complicated than that, but you sort of get the feeling that that's the lesson that she's, she's learning here. And, uh, Paulina Ganeshaw's art, it's, it's absolutely spectacular. It's very much kind of an anime, uh, or manga style, I guess you'd say, um, and, you know, with thicker lines that very much suits a, an all ages book. So I thought it was really great. And I do hope I've said this before. I do hope DC collects this, um, in sort of, uh, you know, its own trade paperback or whatnot. Cause it's something that I would love yeah. for my daughter to check out. I don't know if she'd get that much out of the, the main story it might be a little too complicated or, or mature for her, but but this backup story is is perfect for uh, a younger Wonder Woman fan for sure. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I share your thoughts on the backup. It's not, um, you know, it's not. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, quite frankly, it's it's not my it's not my particular artistic style of choice. Uh, but but there's nothing wrong with it. It reads well, like you said, nailed the character of Diana well. The art. Art really is fantastic. It it deserves to be collected in its own series. I I admit that I I picked this. You know, when I'm reading Wonder Woman, I don't. I'm definitely not reading it for the backup feature. But it is something there. It it does feel a little bit jarring f- to these types of incarnations of Wonder Woman to be in the same comic. Uh, but there, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. And, and again, it's. Uh, Again, it's just not my cup of tea, and obviously we have a bias. We're focusing our review on on, on the core story, and that's probably unfair to the – because th- there's a lot of dialogue in this backup, and it really delves into the character of Diana, and she's young, and she's learning, and she's got all these questions. And so in many ways, for someone who is – you know, for, for new readers, and spe- especially maybe for the younger readers, but, but who are we kidding? Even for us older ones, maybe I should give it more of a chance, but I have to admit I just want a little bit more – I like my I like my Diana a little a little bit more older and learned and a little bit perhaps God forbid a little bit maybe jaded a little bit because uh, I I like I like a little bit more of the drama as opposed to the innocence. <laughs> yeah, and you're right. Th- this version of the story it felt like the biggest chunk of story because you're right. It was really dialogue heavy, and almost you know. And again, Jordi Belair, she's mostly known as a, a color artist, so this may be something that she she learns a little while later. I did feel at times that. There's a little too much dialogue, and it felt it felt like it was dragging a little bit. So, it, it, the dialogue and and what's presented here, it didn't feel like it shouldn't be there, but I think it's just a matter of pacing, which I I've talked about all the time about that's the hardest thing to get right. And obviously, Jordy, even as a color artist, has been creating comics for a long time, and you sort of get that um, that idea of of how a comic should be paced out, but that's not the same you know, working on comics as a color artist as actually writing it yourself. So some of this may have been better served to be in the previous issue or in the next issue because it, it did feel like this was, I won't say it was a chore to get through, but I, I kept going, wait, there's another page. There's, there's so much here to, to your point. And again, especially when you're talking about if it's aimed at a younger reader, it, that can be a lot for them um, to try to, to try to get through. But 
but again, it's beautiful to look at. And I think like Rocky said, it, it's very true to the character of Diana and probably we'll, we'd get more out of it. Like, like we're both saying, if it's collected in a, in a trade all on its own, because then, I mean, you can't help but compare it to the other story because it's in the same book, you know? Yeah. So no, I think I that does a disservice to it. So uh, anyway, moving on. Next up, we have the Joker number four. This is written by James Tynan. The art is by Guillaume March. Arif Prianto does the colors. Tam, Tom Napolitano on letters. Then we have the punchline backup, which is written by Sam Johns and James Tynan. Arts by Mirka Andolfo, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr., and letters by Ariana Mare. So this is interesting. We get more Joker than we've had in any issue of this Joker series so far. You know, Rocky and I have both jokes that it should be called Jim Gordon uh, or Gordon's Quest or something like that. But then, you know, it's going to sell less than it would sell as the Joker. So I don't mind that they call it Joker because really it's a it's a Jim Gordon story. But like I said... This does have the most Joker in it so far, and it's probably the reason why I enjoyed this issue less than I've enjoyed any of the issues. And that's not to say it's bad by any stretch of the imagination, but the first half of the issue sort of feels like the story has felt all along with James Gordon giving us his thoughts and, and sort of narrating the events for us. And then at, at some point sort of in the middle, right around page eight or so, maybe page nine, it sort of flips and then it's all it's all about the Joker um, and and his plans and what he wants and that's when it sort of bogs down for me a little bit because I don't it's not that I don't care but again I wasn't even going to pick up this book because I I'm pretty much burnt out on the Joker a character that I've never really cared that much for in the first place um, so it but it is necessary to understand where the Joker's coming from and he he sort of redirects Gordon in a way, you know, Gordon has been, you know, hired to kill the Joker for 25 million. And he doesn't even know if he's going to be able to, to actually pull the trigger when he uh, initially accepts the quest. And now the, the Joker has sort of th thrown things on their side um, because he's, he's basically telling Gordon, Hey, a day wasn't me, you know, all along, everybody has assumed a day was the Joker and Gordon doesn't know whether to believe him or not and how that's all going to play out. So I do think that the story is going to revert or the, the kind of the, the structure, the story structure is going to revert to more of what we have had in the first three issues. And we have the first half of this issue with Gordon sort of narrating and, and us really getting to know him as a character, you know, more in depth than we have in years. And the Joker is going to be more of a, a supporting character in his own book, which I am all for. Um, so again, the, the, the actual exposition from the Joker here, the reason it's needed does make sense. But just as a byproduct of that, I just enjoyed this issue less than um, any of the previous ones. We do get a little bit of um, Oracle and Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane, uh, a little of their investigation into Cressida, you know, this woman that's, that's hired Gordon to take out the Joker. And we wonder, you know, who she is. And so we get a little insight in, into her and the fact that everything that she does and her movements and everything is is with an eye toward somebody watching her, somebody following her. She covers her tracks very well. So that's sort of added another uh, layer of mystery to that. We get a lot of, I guess I'll call her Lady Bane. I don't know if we ha have an official name for her. I think it's um, Vengeance, isn't it? Vengeance? Oh, that's right. Called yeah. Vengeance? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she feels, I, I don't know how I feel about her. She's sort of, 
it sort of just feels super derivative. Um, I don't think that she's a character that needs to exist. Like I get, maybe you can't use Bane right now because of everything that happened recently in when Tom King's run or something, but it just, it doesn't, it feels like, okay, well let's, let's just create a, a female version of Bane just to create a female version of Bane. Like, I don't know. She just doesn't feel there's nothing unique about her, you know, that we've seen. So, you know, if you're going to create a female version of Bane and the only difference is she's female, Bane's daughter or whatever, then just use Bane. Like, I don't know. There's not, maybe, maybe Tynan has plans for her beyond this and she's going to turn out to be interesting, but she certainly isn't um, up to this point. So I don't know. I, I mean, the art is spectacular. Guillaume March's art has been fantastic throughout his line work. Um, his character acting, the colors are solid. So it's still enjoyable, but just less so with this much Joker. Also, when did the Joker have the, uh, the eyes that were different? I don't ever remember him having eyes, two different colors. Um, was, I don't remember seeing that in Joker war. Yeah. So I don't, I don't remember that. that. That's a good point. Cause I, cause I, y- y- there's that one page, uh, where it's quite clear that the Joker has, almost like you said, a deep, dark red eyes, or at least a red eye anyway. And I'm not sure if that's, did, did we miss that in Joker War? Maybe, maybe somebody can uh, leave a comment. I mean, Joker, or, yeah. You know. The Joker's been around for years and it's never been a thing. I think it's called heterochromatoma. I think when you have two different color eyes, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's still a solid book. I'm still on board, but I will say this. if If we start getting this much Joker in each issue, it might be something where I, I do jump off and just, you know, skim it or read the, the Gordon parts or, or wait till it's all over and, and, you know, kind of get a recap of, of what happened. Cause I'm just not down for this much Joker. That's why I was going to avoid the book in the first place. But I'm surprised you're saying that Jace, because I mean, this is actually the first issue since the first one that we've actually gotten Joker. Most of the previous issues have involved commissioner Gordon, which is of I know. Course our highlight. But... That's what I've liked. I, I, I don't want, I, it sounds It weird, is called the Joker. I don't, want, I don't want any, but I don't want any Joker. I, I want not, you know, the, the amount that the Joker showed up in the first issue which was like two pages that's the perfect amount of joker <laughs> keep keep joker limited to two pages i mean it's the whole thing like leave him wanting more tynan like you call it the joker but i mean i haven't heard anybody nobody i've heard a lot of people praising this book and i know there's a lot of people out there who absolutely love the joker and they think he's the he's their favorite character he's the best batman villain or whatever um but i haven't heard anybody say complaining that there's not enough joker in this book because it's that good <laughs> So yeah. uh, I don't know. I know I know I'm in the minority, um, but oh, the one other thing that that may, might keep me coming back to is we do have a Talon show up in a very menacing way, and uh, I am a fan of the Court of Owls and the Talon, so that could that could keep me hanging around. So I guess we'll see. I mean, I still think this is a great book, and I do expect that the this is probably the exception. The amount of Joker here is the exception rather than the rule, and we're going to go back to focusing on Gordon in the next issue, I bet. Uh, yeah. I I actually think that... I think the timing of the Joker showing up in this issue four was was great because at some point, you knew that there was going to be a, a, a conversation between the Joker and Commissioner Gordon. I think that was pretty much a given. And I think all of us in the in our back of our minds were... were we, 
the as a reader, I don't believe that the Commissioner Gordon will kill the Joker. But I do believe maybe he'll be pushed to the limit and he'll certainly contemplate it. And he certainly, there's certainly scenes in this issue where he's got the Joker in his sights. There was the scene where uh, Vengeance, the daughter of Bane, had Joker by the throat. Commissioner Gordon's hiding behind the corner inside the, the, the cabin. He could have he could have taken out the Joker and likely vengeance as well. Uh, he had the opportunity, but that's not in Gordon's nature. And but and I love the dialogue by the dialogue by uh, James Tynion that he uses. This is um, this is about the lies that we tell ourselves. And Gordon Gordon himself narrates the issue and he talks about the lies that he told his ex-wife and about uh, you know, that lies telling himself that he was a good man trying to make a better world. Uh, but but here's a man who, if he is making a better world, he's doing so at the cost of a broken marriage, a lost son, problematic relationship with his daughter. I mean, he's definitely paid a price. So this isn't exactly someone that you would hold up as a pillar of one's, of one, you know, he might have integrity, but it's sort of like the plumber who, who's, who's, who's plumbing in his house is terrible. You know, I mean, you might be really yeah. good at your job, but maybe you're the best plumber in the world, but you don't have running water in your own house. It's funny how that works sometimes, you know. Um, and Gordon seems to be sort of caught in that, in that scenario in, in his own life. And he, the Joker admires, admires Commissioner Gordon for actually admitting that. I mean, at one point, uh, I think that... Uh, Gordon says to him, I don't know, Gordon says, I don't know that I know how to be good, but I know, but I, I know that I know how to fight evil. And uh, the, the Joker knows he can always rely on Gordon to tell the truth. <laughs> and, but he, he's also insistent that he never had anything to do with the attack on Arkham Asylum. And the Joker it seems to be likely telling the truth. And what I love about this, this issue was exciting. We had we had an attack on two fronts. We got vengeance, wanting to get, wanting to get, avenge her father's death at the hands of of the Joker gas. She blames the Joker for her father's death. We got the Samson family sending their their oldest siblings, uh, the one guy's buddy Samson, and I don't I don't know what the daughter's name is, but they end up attacking the Joker as well. And I mean the 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 gruesome. Uh, I feel sorry for Buddy Samson because he's sure he's he's defaced essentially by the Joker, uh, who wraps some sort of I don't know some sort of tensor bandage or some some burning barbed wire around his face. It looks absolutely horrifying, and he, you know, and he, and he's doing this while he's having this conversation with the with Commissioner Gordon. So what I like about this is not only are we getting something out of the dialogue, but while the dialogue is occurring. You know, we're not just getting a revelation through the dialogue into the insights into the Joker and Commissioner Gordon. We're seeing something absolutely horrific take place. He's defacing another human being while he's casually talking and questioning uh, Gordon, who's also tied up. And, you know, Tinian gets it here. He gets it. And as you said, you mentioned the one red eye of the Joker. That's just, that's so brilliantly done. Gulliam March, the artist there, just, he exemplifies, the, the Joker looks more menacing and devil-like here than he he has in a long time, and it just really really works well, and um, yeah, it's just funny how we you know, just when I think I'm sick I'm sick of the Joker, this is actually an issue where I'm I'm getting just enough of the Joker, you know, 25% of the time, one out of four issues we get Joker, that actually works well here. Maybe that's what the secret formula is: give us Joker and you know, just a quarter at a time, and it's all good. But I don't know, I I I like this, I. 
again, this is one of the my highlights of the week. This had emotional gravitas, weight, uh, great action sequences, and and Commissioner Gordon at the end of it, he ends up being let go by Vengeance. And what's interesting is that when Vengeance lets him go, Vengeance herself says she says to Gordon, she says, "Go home, Mister Gordon. You're already drowning in the darkness. Head back to the light while you still can." And I love that because it's kind of revealing because Gordon is getting darker and darker. He, he knows sooner or later he's going to have to make a, a judgment call again as to whether or not to take out the Joker. But we're also getting something about vengeance. Vengeance, this daughter of Bane, she's not an idiot. She, she's, she's got compassion. She doesn't kill for the sake of killing. She does seem to have her own agenda. It's to avenge her father, I'm sure. But she's not a one-dimensional, like she's not, she's not, She's not a one-dimensional character. I think there's more to her, and I like the teases to her character. I think we have more to look forward to for her. So, yeah. Good yeah, story. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't come across as a meathead, at least, so, so there's exactly. that. Um, and, yeah, the fact that she walks away from Gordon, you, you wonder, because I don't think Bane would, would do that. Um, but I, I do agree with you, and I, I, I echo your sentiments about uh, Gordon's sort of self-analysis, you know, and he, you mentioned, uh, you know, a plumber who doesn't have any water. For me, it, it's always having been a, a chef. Man, when I when I was working and running a kitchen and cooking 12 hours a day, the last thing I wanted to do when I got home was cook. <laughs> and I know a lot of other chefs that are the same way, and um, it's their families that suffer the most, right? Like before I was a chef professionally, I used to cook great food at home all the time, and my family loved it. And then when I became a chef, the last thing I wanted to do was cook when I got home, and they're like, man, you don't cook for us anymore. And yeah, so it's kind of the same thing with, with Gordon. You know, he knows the rules. He knows the law. He knows right and wrong. Um, but it doesn't mean he's a he's a good person. You know, that's kind of how he's seen himself. But he can fight evil. And, and that's that's really that's really great. So I and sort of uh, along the same lines of what we were saying about the Wonder Woman book, this is also a book that is pretty dialogue heavy. And, and a lot of it has to do with Gordon's narration, which we only got in the first half of this issue. But the second half, we get a big exposition dump from the jo- from the Joker himself. So either way, this is one of those books where you get a lot of value for your money because it takes you quite a long time to read it and digest. Uh, the backup story, less so, um, and I don't really have much to say about it. This punchline story, it hasn't been particularly interesting for me, and the, the sort of the twist that happens in this issue with uh, or, or this episode with. Um, Punchline apparently having recruited the other members of the uh, Royal Flush gang to her side without uh, the, the queen realizing it. Yeah. That's super tropey and, you know, been used a thousand times. And it's not, uh, frankly, I expect better from Tynan um, based on all his other work. So, yeah, yeah this, I, Everybody knows I'm. I'm kind of. I feel sort of the same way about Punchline as I do about Joker. She feels unnecessary to me. She is very different than Harley. You know, um, I think some people had that question early on. We already have a Harley Quinn. Why do we need Punchline? Well, Harley has sort of been converted into an anti-hero or a straight-up hero at this point. So they needed to replace her. And, and Punchline is very different. She's very much darker. She's very much twisted. Um, she's not sort of confused or hasn't been manipulated by the Joker the way Harley was in, into becoming a villain. The punch, punchline, this is of her own free will. And so I guess I am saying there's room for, for punchline in a way. Um, but I don't care for the Joker. I'm not going to care for a f- sort of a female version of, and punchline isn't just, you know, some 
female version of the Joker. She does have different motivations and she has her own unique character, but she's the closest to a female Joker of, you know, a female version of any of Batman's villains. She definitely has this sort of nihilistic view of the world and whatnot. And um, she's just not a character that I'm interested in. So this story is not, the story depresses me, honestly. Um, (laughs) You know, we thought we've talked about it before with, the courtroom scenes we've seen uh, with her case and whatnot and how it seems like she could definitely sort of cheat the system and, and be set free based on alternate reality. You know, I won't call it any sort of manipulation of the truth. It's it's a straight up alternate reality. Um, But there's a lot of people in our own world that have been living in an alternate reality and believing straight up lies. So it feels all too real (laughs) that it could happen that way. And like yeah. I said, pretty just like it's depressing in real life when I see these people that, you know, don't believe the facts in front of their face. It's <laughs> it's you know frustrating and depressing here to see the same sort of thing starting to to play out. And I would even sort of extrapolate that to these members of the Royal Flesh Gang, like uh, like Orca, who has decided I'm going to believe what Punchline says over the what is she, the Queen of Spades or whatever, who who has been you know, running their gang and running this prison for a, a long, long time. And all of a sudden you're going to throw your lot in with this crazy psychotic punchline just because you th- think she, you believe what she's telling you. She's, she's a psycho. Why would you believe anything that she says? She lies constantly, you know? So yeah. I, I can't imagine this Royal flesh gang is going to end up for the better by switching sides, but uh, it's it's what happens. Uh, the artwork's solid, though, but, you know, I would expect that from America Andolfo. So, but overall, like a lot of these backups, I could skip it. It's not necessary in my yeah. mind. So, uh, the, Not much to add to what you said. Uh, I, I generally agree, except I'll, I'm, I'm prepared to cut, uh, cut Tinian a little bit more slack on the, uh, on, on the story here, only because... Uh, I do think that we need to have we need to have more background on Punchline. And while I think that this was fairly predictable in terms of a story, it was a little bit tropey. I mean, you can kind of see this coming. That obviously Punchline must have more influence. Uh, I think it's I think it's implied. At least my interpretation is that Punchline learned a lot from the Joker, and I think Punchline learned a lot about the mani- about manipulation. She learned a lot from more from the Joker than we have heretofore been made privy to. And this is just an indication of that. And one of those things is having connections. And she probably utilized some of her connections to the Joker to make sure her, her, her stay in prison was safe. And so she probably had this set up for quite a while. This tells me that Punchline is no pushover. And there's a difference between readers not liking Punchline. Like I, I respect, I, I would just say to you, because I know what it's like just to not like a character. I've absolutely been there. And it's one thing not to like Punchline and maybe kind of like just innately not like the character. But there's a difference between that and blaming the character for, you know, just, you know, being as smart as she is. I mean, I, I think that this is a character that I think I'm hoping, and Tinian I'm sure is hoping, Chase, that guys like you are going to love to hate her moving forward even more. But... That will make the. There's going to be a story in the future where all this is going to pay off because I think that, I think, and you hit the nail on the head. We are living in right now. I know you hate it. We live in a society where there's a lot of people buying into this all kinds of nonsense, 
and it's a very divisive world we live in right now. But this is this is the type of villain that I think I think cathartically I like to live. I can't wait to punchline gets her comeuppance, and I hope she gets it because it's going to be cathartic for me because I get really sick of people in the real world who play these types of games, and so. I think Punchline, I, I, I maintain again that I think Punchline is the villain, is one of, I think one of the, it's a villain that we need to see more in comic books because we need to see this type of, uh, we, we need to see this type of villain and how how to combat it. And we need more creativity from the writers in terms of how do you combat a villain who isn't just all fisticuffs but uses social media. We, we need more of that. And I think Punchline is in many ways a, a, a villain that, there's a lot of great stories ahead with her. I just hope that she doesn't continue to... Maybe now's not the right time to cultivate these types of stories because, I mean, fans like you and I are the ones that they want to keep and you want to attract fans. You don't want to alienate them. And maybe because of the real world politics right now, maybe this is not the right time to push punchline on on readership. I don't know. But I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to discard the character. Too much potential. Yeah, I... And I, I get what you're saying, and I, there are those characters I love to hate. And as much as I rail against Amanda Waller, um, to me, she's become a villain that I, I love to hate. Um, and she sparks <laughs> you know, genuine reaction in me. And that, that's probably for the good. Um, I don't, I, well, punchline for me is not that character. It's not that I dislike her um, or, or she's somebody I love to hate. I, I don't care. Um, I, I'm completely apathetic toward her, which I think is sort of the exact opposite thing you, you want. She doesn't feel necessary to me. She doesn't feel interesting. So, you know, even if you love to hate a character, at least you're engaged. I have no engagement with Punchline. In my mind, she can she could disappear tomorrow and I won't I won't miss her, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, next book, we're going to talk about Justice League Last Ride number two. Batman's Orders, uh, which is a fantastic title for a book. Uh, it's written by Chip Zdarsky. Art is by Miguel Mendonca. Colors by Enrica Aaron Angiolini. And letters by Anne World Design. Uh, and a little bit of a transitional issue, Rocky. What did you think of this one? I I really like this issue. Um, I'm very happy with Chip Zdarsky, man. He's impressing me, man. His DC work so far, I'm just really impressed this entire issue, it just, this issue is everything that I, that I really needed. And I, and this was all, you want to talk about, like, I'm not a writer. I'm not a comic book writer. I don't pretend to be, but I just, I can appreciate, I can appreciate good structure to a story. And I mean, cause this one just cries out. This was such a great story because of the way it was structured, because we're getting the backstory told to us in flashbacks of what really happened to Martian Manhunter. We're not getting the full story yet, but the juxtaposition between the backstory of what led to the death of Martian Manhunter and the guilt and the impact that had emotionally on Superman and even on Batman in different ways and how that's impacting Superman and Batman's behavior now as they're dealing with this new, uh, this new uh, challenge they have of hiding Lobo from the people who are looking for him and hiding Lobo and traveling to Apocalypse. And this entire, this entire issue takes place on the, on the space flight between Earth and Apocalypse and some advent, an adventure that has, that is had along the way. And while that's occurring, you know, you, you we're getting flashbacks into what happened to, uh, what happened to Martian Manhunter and which involved this huge battle against Darkseid. And there was just some absolutely 
epic moments here that just oh my god there there's a scene there, there are scenes here my, my favorite scene hands down i love wonder woman she's right on the cover uh beautiful cover uh i think that's mendonka he did the cover i think oh no it's derek robertson is on the he did the cover derek robertson fantastic cover of wonder woman decked out uh, decked out in her warrior armor and I got to tell you, it starts off with the flashback showing Wonder Woman doing battle somewhere either on Themyscira or somewhere on Earth. And my favorite scene is where it shows her uh, taking out Granny Goodness. I mean, we got a decapitation scene, people. I mean, I thought I loved it when she snapped Maxwell Lord's neck, but Sardaski's Wonder Woman isn't afraid to kick ass and take names. Granny Goodness, (laughs) we barely knew thee. And good riddance. I absolutely love this. The battle sequences was, was fantastic. Right away, you Sardaski established the stakes here of, of, of the battle, the, the, the battle that led to what we know will ultimately lead to the death of Martian Manhunter. While we don't know how Martian Manhunter ultimately died in this issue, we know that there was an incredible amount at stake. The Earth is under attack by parademons. All seems lost. Aquaman seems to have lost his life as well because Aquaman's not wasn't in the first issue. He seems maybe maybe he's missing. I'm not really sure. Uh, but a Batman there, there's a moment between Batman with Martian Manhunter where Batman admits he doesn't know what to do. That if something that if there if his next set of plans, Batman, this man who prepares for every contingency, doesn't have the answer and he feels hopeless and martian manhunter doesn't need to be a mind reader to know that this is serious stuff in this flashback this was brilliantly done the dialogue was great i felt it i thought it was this i i I wanted to stay in the past i didn't even want to come to the future and be on the spaceship because to me the present day the challenge they have of protecting lobo i don't care about that i want to know what happened in the past but sardaski brilliantly just teases us he gives us snapshots of the past and it's like i'm just dying to know you know ultimately we know that martian manhunter has to be the guy that makes a sacrifice and and the way that sardaski teases us is you know at during the space flight you know superman you know it's clear that superman and batman don't really get along flash tries to have a conversation with batman that doesn't go very well batman is batman he's not exactly mr conversation and you know there's there's a ship that's that's while they're on this space flight to uh <laughs> to ultimately to, to go to apocalypse they're they have to superman has to rescue a, another spacefaring uh group that is being sucked into a black hole and he deviates from their flight path in order to help them out and you, you see the symbolism there you, you see you know, Superman's reminded by John Stewart, who knows that Superman is still hurting from the loss of Martian Manhunter, that, look, you made a choice. You deviated from our flight pan to help these people, just like just like John Jones did. John made a John Jones made a choice too. And it cost him his life. But that's that's what we do. That's who we are. And again, just really hitting it home. Fantastic art. There's a one-page spread, there's a one-pager here that shows Dark Side absolutely brilliantly illustrated where he's, t- he's taken out some guardians. Oh my god. I don't know, man. This was this is the Justice League story that I want in you know, I want Sardaski to be writing the main Justice League title. Because this is what I'm looking for. Dialogue, art 
gravitas, emotion, feeling. Man, I, I'm loving it. Sorry, man. I, I, what What do you think? I, I love it. Yeah, I, I I loved it too. Um, it it did feel like a a bit of a transitional issue for me, like I said. Um, but that allowed Zdarsky to give us a lot of character moments, like you were uh, alluding to, and plus it 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 allowed him to do some flashback work to try to give some context to the story. So I, I agree with you. I want Zdarsky to be doing the regular Justice League title. Obviously, the uh, the reason that doesn't work with this particular story, you know, it's the last ride. It's supposed to be the last Justice League story. The reason <laughs> there's so much emotion here is because Aquaman is gone. John Jones is gone. Um, and that has driven a wedge between uh, Superman and Batman, which in turn affects the, the whole rest of the team. Um, but I'm glad the story exists because, uh, you know, like you said, uh, that moment of Wonder Woman turning around and decapitating somebody was uh, was awesome. Um, the, uh, the the dark side moment coming through the boom tube, like you mentioned, awesome. I mean, Mendel, uh, Miguel Mendoca, somebody, you know, an artist that I know who's who's fantastic, doesn't get enough credit. Hopefully this is going to raise his profile. Uh, yeah. I mean, the story beats the, the, who Superman is when he didn't hesitate to go rescue the ship from the black hole, even though he knows it's defeating the purpose of, of the league transporting Lobo in secret to apocalypse. Um, it, it's all, it's all clicking for me. Um, the fact that apocalypse is going to be a terrible idea to go and hide Lobo is so apparent. Um, and Batman's supposed to know everything, but, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's saying that it's going to be a great place to hide him, even knowing in the back of his mind that it's not. But it might lead them down the path of doing what Lobo himself uh, purports should be done. You know, he's like, "You guys are making a mistake." Um, you know, everybody knows that if you want to get rid of somebody, you just chop them up and dump them in space. You know, Lobo say that's what you. Lobo telling them this is what you should be doing to me. This is what I would do. Um, so yeah, very very much on point, very much uh, in character with who Lobo is, and uh, there there's a sadness that permeates some of the characters that really sells this as sort of the last story, and and these aren't the same heroes that we that we knew right because of what's happened, because of the tragedy, because of the uh, attack of Darkseid at at some point when he attacked Earth, and uh, many people died. So um, the one thing that did kind of strike me here is. You know, Dark Side very much should be sort of the well. It's, it's interesting, right? Like Thanos was sort of an homage to Dark Side, but Thanos has arguably, because of the MCU, has grown in in popularity. I guess you'd say, or, or he's just more well known around the world. Like people know who Thanos is, and he's there's a menace to the character that doesn't necessarily exist with Dark Side, even though it should. And I and I know that. That's what Zack Snyder was trying to do with his Justice League movies. I don't know if it, even with the Snyder Cut, if it was very successful. But this is a reminder in this story that that Darkseid is really a bad guy. Like, you know, and the fact that the Justice League was able to turn him away in, in um, Jeff Johns and Jim Lee's New 52 Justice League, it never really... It never really adequately explained to me why Darkseid didn't try again and again and again, right? And apparently he did at some point, and that's maybe Zdarsky was thinking along those same lines. So this this is just a reminder of just how powerful Darkseid is, and that that image that we both mentioned with him coming through the boom tube with a a dead guardian in each hand is just 
<laughs> absolutely fantastic. Like I love this art. Uh, Mike M Miguel is, um, he, yeah, he's he's firing on all cylinders here. I mean, this guy is so so good, uh, and the color work speaks to me as well. And yeah, I, I think just overall a really really fantastic issue. Even though, like I said, it it does feel sort of literally transitional, right? Like they're they're transporting Lobo from Earth to uh, Apocalypse. But the story structure and uh, the flashbacks and and what's going on and just the emotion, the story beats, uh, the little character moments are all fantastic. And uh, I also have to give a shout out to the um, to the variant cover by Inhuk Lee, which. It's one of those covers where it doesn't necessarily, you know, nothing that happens in the story. Jessica Cruz is in the variant cover, for for example, and she hasn't even shown up in the story yet. And Kilowog has Lobo in sort of a a, a half Nelson or, or what have you, and it's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, Kilowog looks a little more pig-like than maybe he should, but, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the glowing chains and everything, it's just – yeah, absolutely great cover. When I saw it, I was I was blown away. And even though Lobo, you know, may be in danger, uh, he still has that sort of shit-eating Lobo grin that he always has on his face. So I, I agree with you. I think for me, um, there's probably one book that I think was slightly better. So it's not my this isn't my favorite DC book of the week, but it's it's a close close second. <laughs> so I thought it was yeah thought it was fantastic. Uh, all right, moving on next to our, our black and white book of the week, which I, again, I'm not sure why DC is deciding to do this in black and white. Is, are people okay with that? Um, I do think the art is better in black and white than in color, as we talked about last time. So I'm, I'm talking about Future State Gotham number two, uh, and we, we covered it, Future State Gotham, the backup stories with Red Hood when we did Future State, and we were talking about Giannis, Milano Giannis's art and how it sort of reminds us of, of the Doug cartoon. It, it That's less the case when it's um, when it's in black and white, but it also doesn't have a very finished look. So I just wonder how people are feeling. I'm not spending money on this, so whatever. Um, but I, I could see some people not being real happy with, with this sort of style of art just because it feels unfinished. But it's written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. The art is by the aforementioned Giannis Milo Giannis, uh, lettered by Troy Petrie. There's uh, a couple of covers, one by Landrone, the other by Derek Chu. Uh, and there's no color artist, obviously, because there's no colors. Uh, and then there is a, a backup story, which in my mind, I thought the art, it's also in black and white, but I thought the art in the backup was substantially better, but it's Olivier Copiel, and he's one of the greatest living artists, comic artists these days. So that's not a big surprise. Um, <laughs> but that that I mean that art was just stunning. Uh, backups written by John Ridley, colors by uh, by Darren Bennett. So yeah, really really cool. Uh, as far as the main story goes, um, I don't know. I sort of have mixed feelings. Like I see what Williamson and Culver are trying to do, and I I sort of like the idea of this this redemption of Jason Todd and the fact that the sort of the mystery man that Jason Todd has been talking to even back in the future state Gotham um, stories, it's been Bruce Wayne all along. So we know he survived the, the explosion, uh, the destruction of the, the magistrate headquarters in dark detective. Um, and so I, I do like that because at this point, Jason Todd has been back long enough 
that I feel like the whole bad boy of the bat family, not getting along with everybody else sort of characterization is sort of played out. I feel like the hatchet should have one of two things, either the hatchet should have been buried and they can just accept Jason for who he is and stop giving him crap for the fact that maybe he, you know, pushes the uh, boundaries of uh, ethics a little more than they're comfortable with, like either accept him for that or just cut him off completely and have no contact with him. Cause I feel like in reality, if I were in a situation like that with somebody in my life, that's the decision that I would make, right? Like stop trying to tr- trying to change that person. It's not going to happen. They are who they are. Right. And when they tell you who they are, either through words or actions, believe them, right? That's like a life lesson for everybody out there, not to get on my soapbox or anything, but believe them when they show or tell you who they are. And so Jason Todd has shown and told the, the other members of the Bat family for years who he is. So either believe him and accept him or don't have anything to do with him, right? Like let him live his own life. Um, and so I, I do like that maybe this is taking us down that path a little bit. Um, but again, it is sort of a, a cheat because it's it's Jason following orders from Bruce that he'll so that he'll do something that the other members of the Bat family will respect and believe that he has changed, even though we know that he, he hasn't. It's just – for this particular situation, his and Bruce's um, sort of plans and uh, an outlook on this situation sort of coincide. And that might not always be the case. Very next time some situation comes along, they may be di- diametrically opposed. But I do like the, the idea that Jason c- can be welcomed back into the Bat family and accepted a little more freely um, without all these conditions on it because I, I think he deserves that. Um, but can we get there and is this the right way to do it? I, I, I don't know. Um, so it's, it's okay. I'll (laughs) say that. And, and the, again, the art is okay. Um, and I, I am, but I am glad it isn't black and white because I think if you color this art, it does take something away from it and it doesn't work exactly well. Um, but the other part of it is there's, uh, there's a couple pinups. One's by Raphael Grandpa, again, living legend. The other's by uh, an Asian, probably, I guess it's a Japanese name, uh, Kamon Shirahama, really fantastic black and white Batgirl image. And then you have Olivia Copiel's art in the backup. Every one of those artists, Grandpa, Shirahama, Copiel, their art is so much better than uh, Milano Giannis. It's not doing his art any favors that it's the weakest art in the book. Uh, I feel a little bad for him. So uh, anyway, what did you think Rocky? I'm, I'm, I'm just not really interested in the narrative here. Cause it, 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 it seems to me to be a little bit, uh, it just seems so, I guess maybe too predictable. I, I guessed, I mean, we, we sort of guessed that the person he was talking to is probably Bruce Wayne, but, Yep. It's a little bit inconsistent. Uh, I have a hard time imagining that Bruce Wayne would tell Jason Todd to go undercover, hurt people, damage them, give the impression that you're killing some people and taking them in, lie to other members of the Bat family, and then Bruce Wayne, the Batman we know, I think would let all the members of the Bat family know that Jason Todd was in on it. I mean, the other members of the Bat family don't really get along with Jason Todd anyway, even when they are on the same team. So I don't really see, I don't really see, it's, it feels forced to me, to be honest. It feels forced. 
I mean, I get it, I'll accept it, but it really does seem convenient and it does seem forced to me that Batman is, well, you know, Batman, so Batman now, this is Jason Todd's redemption arc because Bruce Wayne is who, who the other members of the Bat family, Bruce Wayne needs the other members of the Bat family, the ones that he trusts more than Jason Todd to believe that he's still dead, but he's going to trust Jason Todd. And because Jason Todd is normally an a-hole, let's use, he's going to go to Jason Todd to infiltrate the magistrate. I mean, it's just, you know, as, as Peacekeeper read, I don't know. It, uh, honestly, it, it doesn't drive with me very well. I, I have a hard time syncing that with my previous preconceptions of Jason Todd. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, I know that Jason Todd is always the black sheep of the Bat family, but that is precisely the reason why that I think the Bat family, that, that Bruce Wayne, that all members of the Bat family could easily pretend that they don't like Jason Todd because most of them don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean this this whole this whole facade of oh my god you know Bruce Wayne we have to you know I'm I'm recruiting you Jason I'm depending upon you this depends on you my master plan depends on you this seems really really forced and look we only have to read even uh, Sardaski's uh, you know in Batman Urban Legends the cheerdrop story I mean Jason Todd is a really screwed up character he's the most screwed up member of the Bat family and. And while people love Jason Todd as a character, and I love him too, this is not somebody that you necessarily want to, you know, put all your eggs in the basket held by Jason Todd. But again, they're doing that and they want to prop him up. And certainly if they're successful, as undoubtedly they will be, this will prop up Jason Todd. But it does feel, it feels forced to me. And, and you know, I, I've how many times does Nightwing have to have an argument with Jason Todd <laughs> or Tim Drake have an argument with Jason Todd? It just, I mean... This is almost as tropey as how, how many, it's almost, we've probably seen the Joker as many times as that has been done. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm a little bit, um, this doesn't really work for me, but I will accept it because that's, that's how, that's how they will defeat the magistrate in future state. It's going to be because of Jason Todd. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm nitpicky here and I am, Jason Todd has done a lot of inconsistent things as, as uh, Peacekeeper Red and uh, earning his place. And I thought, I think it's been very poorly handled narratively by editorially and, and frankly getting to this point. Uh, and I, I actually, I agree that the art is better in black and white than it is when it's colored, but it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't feel like DC to me. I, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't have the same feel to me. It's, it's not my cup of tea. I, I don't want to take the wind out of anybody's sails. I encourage people to read this. It's actually easier to follow than 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 I would have thought. Uh, much it, this is actually easier to follow than the abortion issues that 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 where Jason Todd was in and future the future state Jason Todd issues were awful, terrible, horribly drawn. The narrative mess. This actually makes sense because they finally spelled it out that he's working with Bruce Wayne. I don't know why they couldn't have done that to begin with, but in any event. Yeah, yeah. It, th- this is you know, this is kind of a miss for me only because I'm I don't really care about future state because I I think it's going to be avoided anyway. And if I if if I'm brutally honest, if future state is ultimately resolved because of something heroic Jason Todd did, it'll be a disappointment to me. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I agree with you, and and you're 100 percent right. Um, Batman or Bruce could easily tell the other members of the Bat family that. Jason Todd's undercover with the magistrate. 
they're still going to hate him. They're still going to dislike him. They're still going to, well, he's going to find a way to screw it up. They would still treat him exactly as they treat are treating him <laughs> in this issue. So you can't make the argument. Well, it's because they that Bruce wants them to, you know, distrust Jason Todd. They already do, no matter what. Yes. So yeah, kind of silly. Um, as far as the backup story by John Ridley, uh, it is a, a story of uh, of Jace Fox. You know, the the next Batman. Um, I don't really have much to say. The art's fantastic, but. It's another one of those situations where the it, I don't know what the point of this backup is. He's fighting some criminals with his sister. Okay. There are some former Penguin henchmen. Okay. He doesn't like guns. Okay. Um, so I'm not really sure what the point is of it. The story itself, there's just I, I don't I don't get it. I, I I'll, I'll say I said this before. I'll say it again. DC should have just given. Ridley a monthly next Batman book and just have all the Jace Fox stories just in there. Let him just month in month out, put in the characterization for the character, whatever his end goal is and just have it all play out there because from the start, it's been, here's a Jace Fox story over here. Here's one over here. They've got the digital first storyline with uh, the next Batman. It's just, it, it makes it confusing. There's no, um, there's no, you know, common story thread that's running throughout. We're just getting this story here and this story over here. And it, it, I, I don't know is, is, do I have an idea of who Jace Fox is yet? No, I really don't because it's been all over the place in all these different books. So I think, I think DC is doing a real disservice to John, poor John Ridley trying to tell the story of, uh, of Jace Fox. Um, but, the art's fantastic. I could just uh, kind of scroll through and look at the art all day and just not bother to read the words, and I'd be perfectly happy. The art's that good. Yeah, I agree. The, the art is really – it really is fantastic. It's well done. I like the, uh, I like the use of yellow, uh, the, using the use of yellow on the, on the word boxes and then, you know, the, uh, the, the, wor- you know, the word boxes all in yellow. I think that worked very well, at least near the end there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I I think John Ridley is getting short thrift with Batman, uh, with Jason. I think editorially, I think he's. Uh, part of me wonders if that's one of the reasons why he's made his way over to to Marvel, and now he's he's trying his luck with Black Panther as well. Uh, he certainly seems to be uh, having his cake, d- dealing with some pretty big, big characters with, at, at the big two between Batman and Black Panther, and all the power to him. Uh, John Ridley does have a. He does think cinematically. I think his stories are. I, I think his stories. Are, I think he's getting better, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how he does with Black Panther over at Marvel. And uh, yeah, and the art art here was great. Who is who? Did you say the artist was in this backup? It was so oh, Olivia Coppola. Yeah, Coppola. Yeah. Yeah, Copiel, yeah. yeah he's, really. Yeah, he's really fantastic. Good. Yeah, he's 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 excellent. Uh, and Call the Calvary. Yeah, it's appropriately named. Again, I don't. The the one thing that uh, that DC that that has been a miss, you know, with with their, I think generally speaking, with with the exception of Justice League, with the backup of Justice League Dark, I found that the backup features in these DC titles could should probably not they shouldn't we don't need a backup. I don't think we've needed a backup in a lot of these titles. To be quite blunt, the only time that it's actually worked is with Justice League, where the backup is actually better than the main title. <laughs> 
poor Bendis. But in any event, uh, but when it's when the art is this good and and the writing is pretty good, and this is like this is something the Calvary, this storyline, uh, I would expect to see in a Batman black and white. And uh, but I guess the yellow disqualified it on the word boxes there. But uh, yeah, in any maybe. Event, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, here's 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 the thing about Justice League Dark, though. Um, it was its own title previously. You know, none of the rest of these really were. So right. you wonder if that, you know, and and it really should be. But it's a good I don't know. Maybe yeah. maybe with a Discovery, uh, I guess it's going to be called Discovery or Warner Brothers Discovery. I think is what I saw the new company is going to be called. Anyway, maybe they'll make a change. Who knows? Uh, that's probably at least a year away. Uh, anyway, on to Rorschach number nine, written by Tom King. Art is by Jorge Fornes. Colors by Dave Stewart. Clayton Cal handles the letters. Uh, we're getting down. This is issue number nine. We're getting down to the end of the story. Rocky, what would you think of this one? <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I actually I, – I read this. I enjoyed it. And then I, it suddenly hit me that I don't have much to say about it. I actually have one line written. I, you know, I did prepare. Yeah, I do. I do some prep work when I when I prepare for these reviews that that you and I do. But on this one, I got one line, and uh, the one line I'm going to read it. It says, "So it looks like the Redford's campaign manager may have tried to hire Myerson and the Laura girl to kill Turley after all." That's really all I got out of this story. Yeah. <laughs> That's really all I got, and and yet. If I say it that way, I'm doing a disservice to the the narrative because what Tom King manages to do is that this does read like it's episodic. Each individual issue is like an episode if, if this was a series on Netflix or Amazon Prime or what have you. And it's it's the and the art is, is so well done by Jorge, Jorge uh, uh, Fornes. It, it's it's really good. I'm going to, I'm going to try to bring up some of the art here for those uh, not wa- listening to the podcast and on the channel, but this is uh, some of the, uh, the transitions it are, are so well done that like I, I, you really get a sense of the for us. You really get a handle on the detective because the, the, the approach taken by King is that, the detective is actually walking through the the farmyard where, or the acreage where this Laura, this uh, Laura girl was was raised and where they they trained, where her and William Myerson where they trained and they did their their practice shooting, f- planning for their assassination attempt, and as he's looking at the scene, there's it's that's juxtaposed and flashback as a flashback with conversations between Laura and Laura and William Myerson and you know just when we think we, we got a handle on the narrative in the previous issues you know there's now we got other suspects that that you know maybe you know maybe now Redford the other candidate did hire somebody to take out uh, Tillerson because Tillerson was kind of looking like the bad guy at the beginning that somebody that you almost wished in an earlier issue when when the detective interviewed uh the uh, the candidate presidential candidate uh, Tillerson he he was kind of a jerk and you kind of wish that this, the assassination attempt by Myerson and Laura was successful but it wasn't and here here now we're getting more clues that sort of muddy the waters but we get these this these beautiful illustrations and you know it's funny uh, 
I remember we recall with uh, Heroes in Crisis, or uh, you know where we maybe had those the famous nine panel grids or what have you with 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 Tom King. Here we get, you know, we get four four panel grid. We we get multiple. We, we get an interplay of that and. But the the color palette and the color tones and and the flashback sequences the the, the colorist who who is the colorist on this by the way, I forget Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart. Fantastic, yeah. because the tone that is set you really get a sense because you could almost it's easy to do a transition from scene to scene because you know when there's a flashback when when it's in the past you know when it's the present, and it really helps with the narrative because you really get a. Because, you know, there, there's even a great scene where in one of the flashbacks, uh, Laura, the, the, the girl who was sort of like raised and sort of brainwashed by her father to believe that, that these alien squids were taken over the mines and, and, you know, her father was crazy and, you know, they believe in this conspiracy theory, theory that the squids are trying to control the minds of mankind, humanity, and, and Tillerson was was part of it and they had to take him out. And at one point she actually shoots a watchman symbol, the smiley face on the ground. And you see a bullet hole in the head of the, it's just, it's just beautifully done. And so, you know, every now and then we get those reminders from King that this is, this is a watchman tale after all. And, uh, just, just great, just great setting there. Uh, again, it's, not much happens here. So if, if, like I said from the beginning, I get a one-line synopsis as to what happens. Not much happens. But everything is in the pages. Everything is in the imagery. And, and, in, the, and in the dialogue. And it's funny, even the detective, in the scenes with the detective, the detective pretty much only says one word in every scene he's in, and it's home, like H-M. Like, like, like Rorschach used to always say in, he'd always say that, huh, huh. Hmm. You know, that, that, that Rorschach, hmm. you know, that hum. The detective is doing that much like Rorschach did because he's always contemplating. He's thinking that's how Rorschach, you could tell that Rorschach was onto something or reflecting on something important. It was that, hmm. and the detective is doing that here. And I think that's very intentional on King's part, but it's all in the visuals when you see that. So again, when, when I summarize it, and I think the danger here, if I, if I was to summarize this for somebody, You'd be think that nothing happens, but there's a lot here. There's a lot of character work here, but a lot of it you don't appreciate until you see the art. Until by Hartness here, he he made this issue because not a lot happens. But I I gotta say this is one issue where the art pulled me into the story, and while a lot of it is repetitive and where it's just reinforcing what we already know about these characters, it's adding an element of mystery. And it just worked for me, man. It just worked for me. And I can't believe I'm doing this again, but I got to give Tom King. I guess I got to give Jose Fornes the ultimate compliment here because he kept me in this story from what, at the end of the day, didn't have a lot of substance, but the substance comes from the art and the imagery. Yeah, I agree. Um we know this is in the world of Watchmen and, and technically only Dr. Manhattan has superpowers there, but I, I found myself wondering just the way the story is structured in terms of the art with the detective who's, you know, walking around this farm out in the middle of nowhere, which I don't even know why you call it a farm. It's, it's out in the desert. They're not growing anything. Sorry. Uh, except <laughs> My fault. Maybe, uh, except, well, no, I mean, that's, that's what they, the guys called it. You know, the three witnesses that were interviewed last 
uh, issue or called it that as well, but it's not, it's not a far, unless they're growing paranoid delusions uh, of squids taking over your brain. But as he's in these, in these places, in these locations on this farm, it's almost like he's clairvoyant or something, you know, he's seeing these psychic flashbacks of the past, these interactions between uh, the girl and Meyerson, the kid and Meyerson um, and, and what they were talking about and how they were planning on uh, assassinating Turley. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, the big reveal and the issue is that they were actually hired by, by Redford's uh, campaign, which is obviously a big, a big bombshell and what the detective's going to do with that uh, remains to be seen. But uh, this is probably, you know, you mentioned the, the idea of a procedural and this issue is probably the most sort of CSI or criminal minds or the most sort of CBS <laughs> television network procedural feeling of any of the issues so far. It's definitely the detective going around at this farmhouse and putting the clues together. And it's great to see him work. And you do sort of wonder, um, could he, ha you know, is it a supernatural ability? Is it some kind of superpower? Probably not being that it's in the world of the Watchmen, but he certainly knows his stuff as he's using, you know, means of deduction and, and whatnot. And I, I am sort of surprised that that Tom King didn't choose to make the blood stain into any sort of pattern that's sort of watchman esque. This would <laughs> yeah. have been a little it would have been a little bit too on the nose, um, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a masterpiece. This is fantastic. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. It's definitely putting more of the mystery to bed. You know, uh, we, we have confirmation that that the Redford campaign, at least if not Redford himself, were involved in this assassination attempt. And what is that going to do for the Turley campaign? What does it bode for the future of the series? No, there's three issues left. Um, and I still sort of feel like much like his Batman Catwoman series, I'm not sure yet what the like, what are we trying to solve here? You know, what what's what is the point of, of this series? I mean, even the fact that it's called Rorschach and it doesn't have the original <laughs> Rorschach. It's a, it's an old washed up comic creator who's dressing up as Rorschach. Yeah. What exactly is Tom King trying to say here? What is this story trying to do? Um, but it, it's a credit to King and Fornes and their technical ability and, and the color work of Dave Stewart, which is exceptional, probably his best work. Uh, maybe with the exception of Gideon Falls, um, and I, if I had to pick which of those that his color work works better in, I'd, I'd probably have to give it a tie. I don't know that one is better than the other, but it's Dave Stewart at the top of his game. Uh, but everybody, technically, this is a, a perfectly done comic in terms of how it's technically executed from King, from uh, Jorge Fornes, from Dave Stewart, from Clayton Cowles, the letter. Uh, it's, it's perfect. So. Yeah. You know whether or not you enjoy the story and can get invested in it is an, and whether it's for you that's a completely different conversation but in terms of how this comic is technically put together um it's absolutely perfect in my mind so really really good stuff very much looking forward to the end of uh rorschach three issues to go uh all right up next we have uh detective comics number 1037 the Neighborhood Part 4, written by Marika Tamaki. Pencils are by Victor Bogdanovic. So, so this is the first one of the issues not by Dan Mora. Probably needed a, an issue to get caught up. Jonathan Glapion and Victor Bogdanovic on inks. Jordi Belair on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Um, and I 
I do sort of want like is correct me if I'm wrong, but Detective Comics is still coming out twice a month, right? Uh yeah, I believe it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, they really need to go to once a month on these books. Um, <laughs> and not that not that Victor Bogdanovic is a bad artist by any stretch of imagination. I love Victor's work. I have uh, over my shoulder, I don't know if you can see it. Um, no, I guess you can't. But I have a piece of his original art hanging up on my wall. And it's uh, from a Suicide Squad Black Files issue where it's Deadshot's first kill ever, uh, where he kills his father. So I love, I absolutely love Victor's art. It's fantastic. But... Uh, I just, and not even for that reason that I want to keep Dan Moore on the book every, every week, but I just want to make sure that we're getting the highest quality story, which means we need to go once a month. Uh, that's hard enough for these guys to do at this point. Um, also, it's easier in my wallet. Uh, there, there's a couple backups. Uh, one is Gotham Has Heart, which is sort of uh, apparently this journalist, Deb Donovan, giving her opinions on the way Gotham is now. I didn't really know what the point of the story was, but I'll talk about it more in a minute. Uh, but that's also written by Mariko Tamaki. The art there is by Carl Mostert. Colors by Jordi Belair and letters by Rob Lee. And then there's a second backup called Three Minutes that's written by John Ridley that actually stars Batman, not the Jace uh, Fox version, but the real Batman and Robin, Dick Grayson version. Uh, the art is by Dustin Wynn. Colors by John Kalish and letters by Tom uh, Napolitano. So as far as the main story, yeah, I thought the art by Vic Bogdanovic was absolutely fantastic. And his art is similar enough to Dan Moore that I don't think it'll be jarring uh, in when it's collected in trade or anything like that. But it is very clearly not Dan Moore's art. Um, but it, it, it still is, is great. Uh, as far as the narrative, yeah, I kind of feel like Rocky felt about Rorschach. Not much happened here except for Bruce Wayne gets arrested and then... Uh, Worth, Sam Worth tries to kill him, basically. Um, and so this is a character, the way you feel about Punchline is the way I feel about Worth. Like, <laughs> he's a moron, okay? You're a moron. Like, I understand you're distraught because your daughter was killed. But just because Bruce Wayne got arrested, and it doesn't even seem to be a valid arrest because they have no proof whatsoever. So you hear that Wayne's arrested and you're just going to go and kill him? You have no proof. You're completely off the rails. You're just an idiot. And this is a character I love to like immediately just despised him from the moment he appeared in detective comics. <laughs> I have no respect for somebody who's as stupid as he is. You wonder how did you become this big shot, um, corrupt construction company owner that's got his hands on all these dirty deals in Gotham. If you're really this stupid, because he really comes across as impulsive and dumb and you know fly off the handle mm. and to me none of those things speak to being able to control a, a criminal organization and and maybe it's just because he is so distraught because his daughter's dead and this isn't how he normally acts but this characterization this character this person yeah uh can't stand him can't stand him he's an idiot and i hope he bruce wayne kicks the crap out of him basically um so it's well-paced. It's sort of an action-packed uh, issue. Um, but again, there's not a whole heck of a lot of story here in terms of the main book. Uh, Oracle's investigating the whole parasite thing. Wayne gets arrested. Uh, and then Worth blows up the police station <laughs> that he's in. And Bruce escapes. That's basically the, the whole story. So not much happening in terms of 
the main story. And again, I, you know, that kind of goes back to my point about making this a monthly book. Uh, we'd get a bigger chunk of story. You know, it's almost like, well, maybe based on pacing and whatnot, Tamaki didn't have a lot here that she needed to cover in this particular issue. I found that to be the case when Action Comics came back in Rebirth. And it felt like Dan Jurgens was stretching the story out and we got like an issue and a half worth of story every month instead of two full issues. That feels like sort of the same thing here. Um, I will say that the, uh, the variant cover by Lee Bermejo is m- maybe my favorite variant he's done so far. Like I love the green tint. Uh, I think it's absolutely spectacular. Um, so yeah, I mean, Detective Comics is still in still my favorite of the bat books are, I like it better than the Batman book that Tynan's doing. Um, so I, I'm enjoying it, but I hope Sam worth gets his ass kicked basically. So what did you think of the main story, Rocky? Well, uh, first oh, I thought it was hilarious. I, one of my favorite scenes was the interrogation scene with Bruce Wayne and, uh, Bruce Wayne, uh, I think Tamaki does a great job of showing Bruce Wayne is kind of a little bit of a, he really is. He he's, he's the perfect playboy and he, his alibi is a woman and his alibi. It's so perfect. He asks for a phone call. His alibi is a woman that he slept with. He was with a woman the night before. So, you know, he couldn't have been responsible for Lydia's death. And, and of course what's, what's hilarious here is that you could tell that the cops interrogating him, believe him that he was with the woman the before and they also believe him that he doesn't remember the name of the woman he was with the night before <laughs> because it's Bruce Wayne of course Bruce Wayne has slept with a woman of course his alibi is he's sleeping with a woman of course he doesn't remember her name and and the brilliance of it is that he's he's got a call into Oracle and even though none of this was explicitly stated in it you just know that Oracle already has a name to give him <laughs> she's already probably established his alibi somehow. And there, there's a certain brilliance to that, a, a brilliant simplicity to it. This isn't rocket science storytelling. Yet at the same time, I want to give Tomaki credit because this actually, this is very, very believable. If anybody, I mean, how, how tropey is that? Uh, well, no, it couldn't have been me who did the murder. I was, I was, uh, I was with a girl last night. For most of us, that would be like, yeah, right, prove that. But for Bruce Wayne, <laughs> that's like, of course he was with a woman the night before. It's Bruce Wayne. And of course, we know that in, in reality, Bruce Wayne doesn't sleep with a hell of a lot of women, quite frankly. Batman maybe does, but, you know, in any event, <laughs> I really like that. I thought it worked very well because to me, a lot of that was funny for reasons that had to do with what we know about the character. It didn't even have to be explicitly stated. So I, I give Tamaki credit for, for that scene because I thought it was just great. Uh, I agree with you on Mr. Worth. I thought he was a little bit maybe overly psychotic. I also thought it was very unrealistic. If Mr. Worth fu- literally fire, fires a military rocket uh, at the precinct and it doesn't kill Bruce Wayne, who's in prison, who's a prisoner in the basement, I thought that was very hard to believe that Bruce Wayne could survive that. I know he's Batman, of course, but I mean, still, I thought that was very convenient. Uh, Bruce Wayne could see through, uh, th- through Oracle's help, I guess, that he, that, that Mr. Worth was going to fire a military, uh, you know, missile at him, but still, uh, I thought that was a little bit forced. I, I don't see, but I mean, that, that's, I'm nitpicking, you know, whatever he, you know, he's, he's a, this is a man who is a corrupt criminal mobster const- uh, guy who, who's corrupt dealing with construction and he loses his daughter 
I can I can buy into I'm more forgiving than you are, Jace, in terms of I, I can buy into the fact that maybe he's gotten a little bit psychotic, and he's lost his daughter, and he's he's insane with grief and anger, and he's blaming Bruce Wayne just because Bruce Wayne happens to be arrested, so he's blaming Bruce Wayne. Also, we should we should not forget that that there's a legitimate reason to suspect that Bruce Wayne Bruce Wayne is a prime suspect because there's at least three members of, who live in Bruce Wayne's neighborhood and they're all women and they all end up dead and Bruce Wayne is a well-known socialite so it makes sense that Bruce Wayne would be a person of interest so as insane as Mr. Worth as in as insane with grief as Mr. Worth is it's not implausible that he would be very angry with Bruce Wayne and and that the police would interrogate Bruce Wayne. So I like the way Tamaki set this up. It was on the surface, it seems very simplistic, but the way it played out, dialogue wise and everything else, I got I got some good humorous moments out of this. And uh, yeah, I, I I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. Like you said, Jace, it's a, it's another example. It's just like Rorschach. Not a heck of a lot happens in this issue, but there's. There's fun to be had. There's a lot of action here. It was action-packed. There was good moments. I like the fact that we dealt with Bruce Wayne. It was we're dealing with Bruce Wayne's life. This is not this is uh, you know, the way that Batman's going to get out of this. No, no, no. Bruce Wayne has to get out of this. This is Bruce Wayne. You know, Bruce Wayne's ability to be Batman only gets him so far. We only see Batman on the final panel here. When ultimately he's chased down into the sewers, Mr. Worth chases Bruce Wayne after the explosion of the uh, of of the precinct. He he is chased into the into the uh, the I guess the mini caves of Gotham, which Bruce Wayne has converted into Batman mini caves. I guess they're calling them or micro micro caves, micro bat caves. They're calling them. But anyways, I I had I had fun with this issue despite the fact that uh, uh, maybe not a lot happened, but. I will. I will give uh, uh, Tamaki credit that it, this was fun. I I enjoyed this issue. I I, I really enjoyed it. I don't know. I, I I get your point about yeah. There's been three people missing in the neighborhood of Bruce Wayne, and and you know he does know a lot of people and gets around, and so he would be a suspect. But I feel like there's got to be other people in that neighborhood that'd be suspects as well. And there was one point when I was reading this where I felt like, I, I guess when he first it was announced that he was arrested, I'm like. Okay, does anybody remember like who framed the who framed Bruce Wayne for murder uh, when he you know Bruce Wayne fugitive storyline? Like, <laughs> yeah. don't I mean I get it. If these characters are around for decades and decades. It's hard not to repeat yourself, but does nobody in Gotham remember that? Like, if you're gonna arrest Bruce Wayne because you think he killed people, you better have some damn good evidence because he's Bruce Wayne, and even if he doesn't have his fortune, he's still gonna have plenty of people that want to defend him, yeah. and he's gonna get off. You know, he's going to be found innocent. So, I, you know, I won't fault Tamaki necessarily, but it just felt kind of like, really, you're going to arrest Bruce Wayne for murder. You better you better have more than what we're told here, which is basically nothing circumstantial at best. Oh, somebody heard you arguing with her and she ended up dead. OK. Any, any physical evidence of her being in the house? No. <laughs> Anybody see anything? No. Did you bother to check Bruce Wayne's alibi? No. Yeah, it seems a little. Yeah, but it, it's, it is worth noting, though. It's worth noting what Tamaki has to do here in order to tie this into Future State, because in Future State, it's Bruce Wayne that is chased down. It's uh, somebody discovers that Bruce Wayne is Batman. It's Bruce Wayne when when Batman is is 
in quotations here, murdered in future state. And the reason why people think that Batman is dead in future state is that it's basically Bruce Wayne is hunted down and purportedly killed. And of course, the people that know Bruce Wayne, the Bat family, know that if Bruce Wayne is dead, Batman's dead. And and so this is an attack not only on the personal integrity and the reputation of Bruce Wayne, but also Batman. Because remember, in earlier issues, Batman was a person of interest. Now, Bruce Wayne is a person of interest. So this is attacking the integrity of both Bruce Wayne and Batman leading into future state. So it's consistent in that regard. So it, there yeah, is some true. consistency there. Yeah, it's true. I guess it, it goes back to my desire to have future state not exist. Uh, <laughs> and, and that is sort of plays along with something we didn't uh, we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about the the uh, the future state Gotham book you know in terms of okay how's this all going to play out and is it actually going to lead to future state but I can't imagine that that dystopian future is going to come to pass and how far down the line do they have to get us and and that sort of thing so mm. um Anyway, the, the the first backup that I mentioned where it's just narrated by this reporter, I I don't understand what its purpose is. <laughs> Gotham Has Heart, story by Deb Donovan, and she's basically attending this fundraiser for a children's wing hospital, and she's basically calling out the wealthy of Gotham, saying that, uh, you know, they only do these things to show up and appear to care um, when really they don't. Um, and if people really want to survive the violence and corruption that permeates the city, um, they're going to have to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and take care of things themselves instead of depending on other people. Um, but that's not anything original or new. So again, I feel like what's the point of that story. And then the other backup story, which is called three minutes by John Ridley and Dustin Nguyen is so beating you over the head to make this retcon of why Lucius Fox feels the way that he does in future state. And it feels so wildly out of character. Frankly, it, it feels insulting. It feels really insulting. This is so out of character for who Lucius Fox has always been. Um, and now because they want to have a Ridley wants to tell a different story about the Fox family that they've got to go back and retcon because again, this is a story of, of Batman and Robin, Dick Grayson, Robin. So it's early, much earlier in Batman's career than, you know, current times or anything we saw in future state. Mm -hmm. And so I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to believe that Lucius Fox works for Bruce Wayne and works for Batman and is his armorer and helps him out and provides all this. But the only reason Lucius Fox is doing it, is because he's there to protect the other members of the Bat family. So it's like he fundamentally disagrees with what Bruce does. He even says that this won't end with Robin. You know, this won't end with Bruce just recruiting one Robin. One the, uh, Batman's going to lure more people into this cult. He calls it a cult. Yeah. This is so, th honestly, I'm in, I'm I'm insulted by this. And then at the end, instead of getting a end, it says at the beginning. Yeah, I, I like I said, I, I don't have anything else to say about it other than I'm insulted. This is really lazy, and I, I'm sorry, John Ridley. Uh, I know you're a talented writer, but if the history of Batman and the history and the characterization of Bruce Wayne and Lucius Fox and the rest of the Bat family doesn't fit the narrative that you want to tell, 
you got to figure out a different way to do it. You can't go back and fundamentally change the character of Lucius Fox because that's basically what he's done here. He's basically turned Lucius Fox into somebody who he calls what Bruce Wayne is doing a cult. No, (laughs) I don't. I don't like it. And I would argue with anybody who says that this is good storytelling and good characterization for Lucius Fox. No, it's lazy. It's insulting. And it's wrong. It's wrong on all levels. Um, And I I don't know why anybody at DC editorial allowed this to, to be published, frankly. Well, the worst uh, thing I've read in a long time. Like I really vehemently disagree with this story. So well, I, I would, I would just, uh, I, I think maybe, I think maybe just to, uh, just to give you a little bit of pushback on on what you're saying there, and and maybe hopefully maybe give you some reason to hope that it, th- this story is not as bleak as you've originally interpreted it. I didn't interpret it quite that harshly. Yes, he did he did refer to the Bat family as a cult, but by one interpretation, I don't think that's necessarily a crazy interpretation. It is on at a certain level insane that Bruce Wayne would take people under his ward and and, and train them to fight criminals and put themselves in harm's way not, all the that's time. That's not my that's not my argument, Rocky. My argument is that Lucius Fox has never been portrayed as believing that. Because I agree with you on the on the face of it, yes, you could see that. The point is that Lucius Fox has never expressed that or been characterized that way. Well, whether or not that's a completely different argument. Fair fair enough, and (laughs) and I admire your passion on this. I will just I will just say to you that I don't. We haven't gotten a hell of a lot of stories with Lucius Fox, quite bluntly. And and now, by the way, I believe it or not, I actually side more with you on this. But I'm just I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt on this. And what I think's occurring here is because we're in the DC omniverse and because we're sort of like there's some rewriting going on and a reimagining of certain key characters, because we're trying to bring these these heretofore other characters that have haven't had as much limelight in the past. I think we're I think this is an attempt to try to make them more interesting. And I will say this that reg, that if this is indeed is the characterization that they're going with with Lucius Fox, and it appears that they are that he felt this way from an early from for many many years, possibly a decade, because this is going back a while. Yeah. That despite him feeling that way, Lucius Fox was still always somebody that was loyal to Bruce Wayne. He was still somebody that Bruce Wayne could depend on, and that Bruce Wayne Batman continued to depend on, and he never broke or violated any of Batman's secrets. So. I think that Yeah, but he says right there in the story, he says I'm not doing it for Bruce. So you're right. He did he did stay loyal and he did provide Bruce what, for, yeah. with whatever he needed as Batman, but he says right there in the story, I'm not doing it for Bruce. I have to stay to protect Richard and whoever comes after him. Someone has to be here to protect them. Well, I, so I think that's I, a, I think me, that's, that's an that's, interesting take. I just I just think that that's an interesting take on the character that you can still side on the side of justice and, and and but you can ultimately be on the same side as Batman but for very different reasons and i think it adds an element of complexity and it, you know it's he's more interesting to me Lucius Fox with this take than he was in the past just being a just being a glorified black alfred to be blunt cuz no, that's how i, I always I, thought I, him yeah 
I, I couldn't disagree more. You know, I talked about it in Future State. I have no interest in the Fox family. I think Ridley is oversimplifying things uh, and and basically rewriting history, and it doesn't it doesn't sit well with me. Um, if he wanted to do that, I think again he could have found a different way. I think this is just being lazy, and it's him changing these characters around to suit his own agenda, which I get it. You if you have something you're trying to say about either persons of color or justice or whatever, and you want to use the comic medium to do it. I have no problem with that. Come up with new characters. Don't, don't corrupt old characters. Um, and, and you're right. Like Lucius Fox, he, we didn't get a lot of him, but whatever we got, I always liked the character. I always respected him. And I felt like he was on the side of the angels and that he, he did have love for Bruce Wayne in a lot of the same ways that Alfred did. Um, and this paints it in a completely different picture and it makes him seem manipulative and he has no loyalty to Bruce. He has no loyalty to the mission or to Batman. It's all about, in his own words, I'm here to protect the insanity of this cult that, that Bruce is yeah. bringing along. And it speaks poorly to me of who Lucius Fox is. If you're really diametrically opposed to what Bruce is doing by endangering these people. Why did you do it? Why did you stick with him? Why did you run his company for all those years? It, frankly, it, it, instead of, I think, doing what Ridley is attempting to do, which is make a Lucius, you know, some sort of principled guy who, you know, is, is there to protect the Bat family, it weakens the character by saying, okay, he didn't believe in this. So he basically was a two-faced traitor to Bruce Wayne all this time. And it also colors the it colors everything in terms of where the characters are now that Lucius Fox has all of Bruce Wayne's money. Are we going to find out that Lucius Fox <laughs> was in on it with the Joker to get the Bruce Wayne fortune in the first place so that he could hopefully stop being Batman and stop endangering these kids? Is that who Lucius Fox is? Lucius Fox, Amanda Waller in disguise. Has he become a out and out villain? You said it. I, I didn't. <laughs> I like Lucius Fox, okay? Yeah, I yeah. like him as a character. And yes, maybe he hasn't gotten enough, you know, time in the sun which has allowed Ridley to, you know, corrupt well, him like this in my mind, and that that bothers me, but I yeah, I I just I I will say I will say this, Jace. I I will say that, you know, the 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 angle upon which we've we've had this friendly debate on this subject is that I I based upon what you just told me and and my own opinion I'm more interested in this in Lucius Fox than ever before. I, I think he's he's more complex than we heretofore thought, and I, I'm I just err on the side of optimism where you you're you're a little bit more pessimistic and and uh, I I think he's very interesting in particular when you factor in the reality that you know here's a guy that he's got all these principles but there is a degree of hypocrisy in and I think you've identified that Jace very clearly there's a degree of hypocrisy in Lucius Fox's thinking, which is magnified by our foreknowledge that his own children, one of them will become Batman one day. So I think that there is a certain narrative poetry to that and a, and a certain amount of, you know, you know, be, be careful what you fight against because you're, you know, in this case, his offspring becomes the very thing that he might, uh, might, he might resent. And in fact, we know that Lucius Fox from the pages of Future State has a has a problematic relationship with his own children. And maybe that's the reason why. Or maybe that plays plays part of it is because of his 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 dire need to protect his protect, you know, Robin 
you know, and yet he he failed to protect his own children, one of them from becoming Batman himself. So I think there's I think there's a, there's an interesting element here that uh, I think I don't know if it was by maybe it was by accident as opposed to design, but I, I'm I'm actually interested in Lucius Fox now, and and it's all your fault. <laughs> I think it's shameful. I think it's shameful that John Ridley would disparage Morgan Freeman this way. That's not right. So that's all. That's all. In the in the infamous words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. So let's uh, let's move move on right. uh, to more Batman. Because no, we're not done yet. We have not one but two more Batman books to talk about. Very Batman heavy week. Uh, up next is Batman: The Detective Number Three, written by Tom Taylor. Pencils by Andy Kubert, inks by Sandra Hope, colors by Brad Anderson, letters by Clem Robbins. Uh, this was a really great issue. What did you think, Rock? Oh, man. Sorry. I just uh, – I'm handling the imagery here, so I got to get my bearings straight. Uh, I've – well, I've been loving this uh, Tom Taylor. I've been on a – I don't know what it is, man. I've been on a t- Tom Taylor love fest for, for quite a while, and I know I've been uh, – I've been loving this Batman, the detective. It's actually what, you know, in fact, I think it's, I have, I haven't actually consciously thought about what my favorite Batman comic is right now. Cause you know, in fact, even in August, the solicits, I think, I think it's, what is it? 40% of all DC titles are going to be Batman related come, come August. It's just insane. But yep. I'm I'm really enjoying what Tom Taylor's doing here, and I think I've enjoyed this uh, perhaps a, a little bit more than, uh, than y- y- yourself has but i really love this issue batman did the detective this uh the, the central premise of this is this is an older batman it's drawn by andy kubert and those of you who love the frank miller dark knight returns andy kubert has sort of a frank miller-esque sort of style and what really works here is that this is takes place someplace sometime in the future where it's a sort of an older grittier Bruce Wayne, who's lost all contact with members of the Bat family. And some some villain out there is out there killing off every person that Batman has ever saved in his career. Somebody is killing them off one by one. And Batman is going on an international sort of manhunt to find out who it is. And he ends up in Paris, France. And Henri Ducard is someone who, as a young Bruce Wayne, he got trained by Henri Ducard. And Henri Ducard was somebody who could find anybody. And... And this issue is essentially almost the entire issue was a flashback to when a young Bruce Wayne met Henri, uh, uh, Henri Ducart and uh, Ducart, and uh, and just it's it's an interesting origin story, and I love that. I I'm always a sucker for a story, and we get them once in a while. I would like to see more of them. I would like to see more stories where we get a young Bruce Wayne being trained by all these people when 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 Bruce Wayne traveled the world and he learned to become Batman he had all the the, the best people in all the fields train him and train him the best trained his mind trained his body and uh and Henri Ducard was one of those individuals uh who 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 trained him to be a very good uh detective and trained him to be, to find anybody and there, what I love about this issue is that it, it goes through various, um, I'm going to try to, uh, just let me bring it up here. There are, 
there are various scenes where, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> where uh, last issue ended, just to be clear, where Andre Dukart, they were attacked by, by this group of terrorists that are basically trying to take out trying to take out all the people that Batman saved. Well, they, they, they tried to kill Henri Ducard. And so he's, so Batman basically takes him to the hospital and, and, and then as Ducard is in the hospital recovering, we were, the readers were given us a flashback to a young Bruce Wayne looking for Henri Ducard when he was younger, a 17 year old Bruce Wayne. And, and I love the characterization here. I love this issue. And just the, the arrogance, the youthful arrogance of Bruce Wayne wanting to protect, hating guns. Uh, a young Bruce Wayne saves Henri Ducard from a, from a would-be assassin. And Henri Ducard, you know, helping Bruce Wayne, training him. So he spends years, uh, be, he spends, well, we don't know how long, but we, we're assuming at least six months to a year being under the tutelage of Henri Ducard. And ultimately... Ultimately, this young Bruce Wayne finds out the hard way that Ducard has a different moral code than he does. And it's just a full props are to Tom Taylor because you really get a sense of just how of how intelligent Henri Ducard is. Ducard knows right away that this young 17-year-old Bruce Wayne is somebody who's lost somebody, who's who's uh, he's trying to he's trying to deal with that loss in the only way he knows what. He knows how he's someone who hates guns and he's very passionate and, and Henry Ducard knows that this young Bruce Wayne is somebody very different than, than what he's used to. And he knows that this Bruce Wayne is special, but Bruce Wayne also learned something from Henry Ducard. He learned something about having a base of operations, about having a network of friends. And that, you know, one of my favorite lines is when Henry Ducard tells him that, you know, you got to have a lot of friends. And Bruce Wayne says, you know, you don't, you don't have a lot of friends. You, you bought, you buy all your friends. You, you pay for all your, your friends or they pay you. And, and he says to them, look, some of my best friends are people who are my best customers. <laughs> I mean, it's about establishing contacts any way you can. That's how you got to make it. And you can see the links between Henri Ducard style and Batman's. But of course, the primary difference is that, as is revealed in the issue, is Henri Ducard is not afraid to lose. He, he uses lethal force. And that's really driven home at a scene where, where Bruce Wayne gets careless and, and he, he gets caught by the very person he's following. And he ends up being saved by Henri Ducard. But Ducard ultimately ends up killing the person that they were looking for. And that leads, of course, that severs the relationship between Wayne and Ducard. And that... That that really brings things into the present because you, it it establishes the relationship that they have. And there's also another sh- a scene flashback ten years after that where Ducard and Batman, you know, they defuse a nuclear bomb under the streets of London. I mean, there's a lot of action here. It's action packed, and we're really getting the history of these two characters. And I got to tell you something for people that are just that don't know a lot about Batman's history, you know. Henry Ducard might not be a character that a lot of people are familiar with, but you're going to get everything you need to know about Henry Ducard in this issue. And dare I say, I think you're going to like it. I, I think I think he's a likable character in his own way because Ducard might be a killer at heart, but he's not, it's not, you know, he does it for money, but he also, I think he loves Bruce Wayne. I think he cares for Bruce. He just genuinely has a different moral code and he, he respects him. And, 
I really love, love this issue. And, and at the end here, when Bruce Wayne surrenders to authorities, uh, I love the, the thoughts that go through Bruce Wayne's head. Should I surrender to authorities? Should I escape? And yet he decides to surrender because he wants to find out what's going on. Why do, why do the police want to, you know, why do they want to talk to me? And of course they end up arresting him for the murder of Henri Ducard, who, who, as far as I know, we, we didn't know he died. We, Bruce had taken him to the hospital. Batman had taken him to the hospital. Uh, and, uh, but now apparently perhaps he's dead, but it's now we're going to get, it's teasing that the next issue we're going to get an interrogation scene with the police and Bruce Wayne. And I'm looking forward to that. And if it's half as good as the interrogation scene we got in, in the Tamaki written detective comics, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So again, I don't know, man, I'm, you know, maybe DC publishes too much Batman, but when Batman's this good all around, I'm, you know, like I said, I, I, I got no problem with it. What do you think, Chase? It- yeah, I didn't like it as much as you did. I did think it was it was good. I, I particularly enjoyed the flashback scenes to Andre training Bruce, which I, I agree we haven't gotten enough of those type of stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bruce Wayne's d- arrested in Detective Comics and being interrogated. Now we've got Bruce Wayne arrested here in Detective going to be interrogated. we got Nightwing <laughs> being interrogated. The police all of a sudden are the bad guys, which I guess, you know, again, reflecting society and our reality of our changed world people don't trust the police anymore really you've never been able to trust the gotham city pd with the level of corruption but apparently you can't trust the police in bloodhaven or france either um <laughs> i don't think Henri ducard is dead i think if anything he wants whoever was trying to kill him these people that are out there picking off the uh the people that have been saved by batman over the years i think Henri ducard wants them to believe that he's dead and he probably has arranged himself for Bruce to be arrested. That would not surprise me in the slightest if that's his plan. And if Bruce pushes back on that at all, Henri is going to say, hey, I did you a favor. Now we can say, hey, Bruce is off the table. He's sitting in a jail cell somewhere, and you can operate more freely as Batman and do whatever you need to do to solve this mystery. I, that's my guess of what's going to happen. Um, but, I, again, we'll have to to see how it all plays out. So. Uh, I don't. I don't have much more to add to, to what you already said. Uh, I think you you covered it. The, the art is spectacular. It is an older Batman. He it do, he does have that kind of heft, that weight to him. So he's much bigger and blockier than we've ever seen him before, uh, and I think it works for this story. Um, once again, I'll I'll give a lot of credit to Sandra Hope's inks over the uh, the line work of uh, Kubert here. It brings the art to life very very well. Um, but in a way, there's not a heck of a lot that happens here to move our current nar- narrative forward because the majority of the issues spent in those flashback scenes, which are which are fantastic. I honestly would love a like I don't know six, eight, twelve issue miniseries with uh, a young Bruce Wayne and an Henri Ducard traveling around the world, hunt, you know, manhunting. I would I would be all in for that. That would be that'd be uh, great. Fantastic. Yeah, that would be really, really cool. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy this. Um, it's just further proof that it doesn't matter what character Tom Taylor's writing. The guy's a, a hell of a talent. So, all right, well, on to the next Batman book, uh, Batman Urban Legends number four. We've got four stories here. We've got part four of six of the Cheers storyline, or Cheer, rather, storyline from uh, writer Chip Zdarsky with art by Eddie Barrows and Eber Ferreira. 
Marcus Toe handles the flashbacks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Becca Carey on letters. We've also got part four of five of the long con. That's the grifter storyline written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Ryan Benjamin, Antonio Fabella on colors and Seda Timofante on letters. And then we've got uh, a standalone Batwing story, which it was great to see Luke Fox back as Batwing. Uh, it's written by Cameris Johnson. Pencils are by Louisa Mikazi. Trevor Scott on inks. Andrew Dollhouse does the colors. And then we've got part one of three, a Tim Drake story called Some of Our Parts, written by Megan Fitzmartin, art by Belen Ortega, colors by Alejandro Sanchez, and letters by Pat Brousseau. And I'll just point out that uh, Megan Fitzmartin, that's the same uh, writer who wrote the Robin Eternal storyline in uh, in Future State um, that starred Tim Drake when he became immortal. Um, and there was a reference to that, Tim Drake being immortal in the Future State Gotham issue too that we talked about earlier. So clearly she loves herself some Tim Drake, and uh, she's uh, she's continuing that, uh, that love by – bringing him to a three-part story in, uh, in Batman Urban Legends. So, uh, but the first story is that uh, Chip Zdarsky story, Cheer, talking about the cheer drops. And we saw last issue that uh, Jason Todd and Batman had agreed to sort of set aside their differences and sort of investigate for the sake of getting this these cheer drops off the street and, um, you know, hoping to find a, a solution for this little boy who Tim Drake <laughs> murdered the guy's father. Uh, although was, you could, the argument could be made it was in self-defense. Uh, but anyway, he gets a lead and he goes to the building uh, after having a disagreement with Batman. Batman's like, we need to go and look at the information we have. We do our hunting at night, not during the day. Jason Todd, ever the hothead, didn't want to do that. Goes to this uh, building and gets attacked by Mr. Freeze. So we see their battle here all the while. Jason Todd thinking back to that, uh, that fateful... Uh, day where he met Joker and a crowbar and not in a good way. Um, and so that's, that shows us that Jason Todd does have the ability to grow. And that's great that Zadarsky does that here. He basically shows us that when Jason feels that he's out of his depth and, and he needs help, he actually calls out to bat. He calls Oracle. Hey, I need, I need Batman's help. I need Bruce Wayne's help. I, I would argue that's, very much character growth for who Jason Todd is. We talked about it when we were talking about future state Gotham about how most of the time he tries to go, you know, go it on his own. Um, but unfortunately it seems like by calling out to Batman for help, he sort of played right into Mr. Freeze's hands because that's exactly what freeze wanted him to do. So they could capture Batman. So there's a couple issues uh, left of this story. A couple more parts. Uh, this is part four of six, as I said, and how Mr. Freeze ties into the cheer drops because I thought that we thought it was Scarecrow and then maybe it's not Scarecrow. Maybe it's Mr. Freeze. Like what exactly is going on with the cheer drops? What is going on with Mr. Freeze? We don't yet know, but it's clear that Zadarsky is attempting to explore the relationship between Jason Todd and Batman, which I find really interesting because we talked at length about it when we talked about the future state issue uh, future state Gotham number two. Um, and I wonder if this is some editorial, you know, I went to Zdarsky and said, Hey, can you write a story that explores Jason Todd and Bruce Wayne's relationship? Cause it seems like we're getting a lot of that over in future state Gotham as well. So I just find that interesting. Maybe we are headed down 
the path that I was talking about of, of redemption for Jason Todd or bringing him back into the Bat family or just changing up his status quo a little bit so that he's not quite the black sheep of the Batman family, as it were. Um, but I've said before, Zdarsky, he writes some of the most, most emotional stories in, in all of comics, and, uh, and this is no exception. I thought this was fantastic. Um, this Batman Urban Legends, I, I wasn't 100% sure when they announced it. I'm like, really, more Batman content? But the thing is, it, we don't get a lot of Batman. Um, we're getting so much more of the other characters. And between this Cheerdrop storyline and the Long Con Grifter story, I could read I could read installments. I could read stories with these characters by these creative teams, like, indefinitely. You know, I'm going to be sad when this Cheerdrops and the Long Con uh, storylines end because they've been fantastic. Like, you want to talk about what my favorite Batman book is right now? It's this. It's Batman Urban Legends yeah. uh, because these are the best stories of the Bat family without question. This is better than Batman. This is better than Detective, uh, better than Tom Taylor's Batman book. These two stories, the Red Hood story and the Grifter story, are the best Bat family stories coming out right now from uh, Zdarsky and Rosenberg, respectively. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, one of the most, uh, I think the most poignant scene for me, and I have it up on the screen for those who are not watching this as a podcast or listening to this as a podcast, but when, when Oracle contacts Batman and says to him, you know, Batman, you know, you know, Jason needs you. Jason never, he asked for you, Bruce. He asked for Batman and all, all Batman says is understood. And especially for us long-term readers, what is so impactful about that scene is that we also understand exactly what's going on. That for for Jason Todd to ask for help, you know it's serious. For Jason to ask for help from Batman, you know it's serious. You know that this is that that Jason Todd would would crawl over a mile of broken glass on his knees before he would ever ask for help from anyone, especially Batman. He's asking for help from Batman. You know this is serious. And this reminded me when I saw this scene, this reminded me of, uh, I, and I know what this is a different scene, but it reminded me of a, of a scene from Identity Crisis where, uh, where, uh, where Batman and and Robin were, were were trying to were trying to get to to the to the scene to 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 save uh, uh, oh, who who was it? They were trying to save. Uh, at, um, oh man, Gene Loring. Th- thank you, Gene Loring. Anyways, yeah, but it, it was it it was just it's just poignant, and the way that this scene is played out, it Zardaski is. He, he's so good at this. You know, he did the same thing with Life Story with Spider-Man. He comes in, he just does, he tells just snapshots of, of various periods of time in, in the life of Spider-Man and absolutely nailed it. And of course, that's critically acclaimed Life Spider-Man Life Story. Anyone who hasn't read it should check it out. You don't need to know anything about Spider-Man to enjoy Spider-Man Life Story. You actually don't need anything. You don't need to know anything about the backstory of Jason Todd and Batman to understand Cheerdrops. You can read this. You can go into this cold. And you can understand just the way this scene is told that, okay, well, Batman understands. You know, th- this is Jason Todd asking for help from his, from from clearly the fa- the only father he's really known in his life, and that's Batman. And very poignant scene. It's, and you know what? 
I don't even know why Mr. Freeze is part of this. I don't even, I don't even, I can't even remember Mr. Freeze being in last issue. This entire issue is all about the relationship between Jason Todd and Batman. I forgot all about the kid. I forgot about, this is about Jason Todd asking for help from Batman. And, and the way I never really saw the way that Sardaski scripts the, the interplay between the, 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 the past of when Jason Todd defied Batman and went off to look for the Joker and ultimately get got crowbarred to death and then died in the explosion and Batman arrived too late. But in this case, Batman arrives on time and, you know, that poignant scene, that the epic scene, one of the most epic scenes in the history of comics is Batman holding a dead Robin in his arms, which is which is beautifully illustrated here by Eddie Burrows with Ebert Ferreira. And... And when he saves, he ultimately saves Jason and he tells, you know, he's, he, you know, there's that scene where Jason's looking up and uh, he says, you were here and Batman looks down at him and says, always. So whether, whether Jason Todd is alive or dead, Batman's always there. I thought that was just beautiful. It said a lot that no matter what, that whether life or death, Batman will be there. And no matter, even if he fails, he'll still be there. I thought this was powerful. Especially if you're longtime Batman readers like you and I are, Chase. I thought this really resonated with me. This had an impact on me. And as a longtime reader, I forget that it was what what the hell was it? 25, 30 years ago that that Death in the yeah, Family it was, came out? It's a long yeah, it time. Eighty yeah, eighty six or eighty seven. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really still long time ago. it still resonates with me. And the callback here and the beautiful callback uh uh visually with the art i mean kudos to burrow burrows and fiera for 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 making making all this hit home and and then ultimately batman of course being frozen at the end uh you know putting himself probably at, you know no, no thought to his own safety much to his detriment because they, he gets frozen by freeze but anyways very powerful tale finally i just want to say i feel like a fool for admitting this but who is that character at the end who the, this new character with the with the smiley face on yellow smiley face on his check is that a new character who is that yeah you know? I, have, I have no idea maybe that's the cheer drops guy no clue well, maybe it is cheer drops guy because it's yeah. it maybe this is a speculator alert is this new guy called cheer drops but he he's got a yellow almost like twisted happy face on a, on a leather jacket and he's got a yellow paint on his face uh, and the smile on his face matches the smile on his jacket. It's very interesting new character and maybe an interesting int- uh, maybe an interesting addition to maybe not Batman's rogues gallery. Maybe this is someone for Red Hood's rogues gallery. We'll have to wait and see. But overall, very impressed. And like I said, I, I couldn't argue with you if, if you were to insist that this is the best Batman title out. Yeah, the guy does say it's an honor to finally meet you. So I think it is a, a new character. And, and to... to- to Rocky's point earlier about not needing to know anything, like there, there are those flashback scenes from Marcus Toe that do flash back to that death in the family storyline um, that sort of inf- inform this, right? Like that's exactly the point that Rocky was making about, you know, Oracle telling Batman, Jason asked for you. The whole point of, of the story and de- death of the family when Jason Todd gets killed by, uh, by the Joker, he was just waiting for Batman at that point to leave because he didn't need Batman's help. and was going to, his plan all along was to not listen, even though Batman told him, don't take the Joker on by yourself. Yeah. That was always, that was always Jason Todd's plan. I'm just waiting for Batman to leave so I can go take care of things myself. I don't need his help. You know, the young brashness of youth 
right? And he, now all this time has gone by, and that's exactly what Jason Todd is asking. You know, brilliant. He, never, brilliant. he would never ask. And so that was very poignant. But the part that got me was actually even the next page when, you know, when Bruce makes that realization that, that Oracle has made about, yes, Jason Todd is finally asking for help. He says, damn it, son, I'm on my way. I won't let you. And then he doesn't finish because he's thinking back because he's probably thinking, I won't let you die or I won't let you fall or won't let you get hurt, whatever his thought was going to be to finish that. And then he realizes, but he already has, right? He already yeah. did let him down. Um, when he died the, the first time, which again, yeah, you're right. This is, this is fantastic. And one last thing I'll mention before we move on to the next story. Um, a lot of people forget that that death in the family storyline, or uh, I'll ask, I'll just ask it this way. Do you know who it was written by Rocky? Do you remember? <laughs> oh man. It's somebody that is very, very well known worldwide now, I would say for a different character. Oh, man. Jim Starlin. Oh, yes. That was during Jim Starlin's run. You just on, did an interview yeah. with him, too. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realize that, yeah, Jim Starlin, he's he's not just an artist. You know, he's a writer as well. And uh, he had a, a decent run on Batman, and that was he was part of that story. Although, you remember, it was the – for people that aren't familiar, was DC put in the back of part three, the issue, they put two phone numbers, and you called in and you voted – if you wanted him to live or you wanted him to die. And so Starlin had two different, it wasn't like Starlin just decided he wanted to kill Robin, wanted to kill Jason Todd. The readers voted. And if I remember correctly, it was less than 50 votes that decided might even been less than five. I don't know. It was a very, very small margin. Yeah. Of, just uh, some useless information. I did vote and I voted to kill Jason Todd. I, 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 really, phoned really... In, I phoned in from Canada, uh, from, from Southern Alberta. I phoned and I voted. I didn't like Jason Todd. I was a lot uh, of people didn't. I didn't like him. I I didn't like him. I thought he was unlikable. Uh, I I never liked Jason Todd. I, and I'll be honest, me, I never liked Jason Todd. I've never liked Jason Todd even up up until he got his own until Red Hood and the Outlaws when I started to like him again. But I never liked Jason Todd. I I wanted yeah, him dead, people, and I never lost sleep over it. I never lost sleep over him dying. Yeah, a lot of people felt that way. A lot of fans felt that way. It was the whole reason they came up with the idea especially coming following the kind of golden child of Dick Grayson. But here's what I don't understand. I don't like Damien. And Jason Todd was, yeah, he was a little unlikable. He got on my nerves at times, but I didn't dislike him as much as I disliked Damien. But yet Damien was a, a dick, like way, way further along on the, the dickhead scale than Jason Todd. But somehow he was revered for that. Like it was like he went so far over that it was it was satirical you know, he was like, oh, well, that's just Damien. I don't understand why Damien gets a pass. And Jason Todd got killed. Uh, although Damien got killed, but they brought him back. Uh, yeah. And then he got killed again in the Robin number one, and they brought him back. So I guess Damien's been killed twice. But it would be nice to leave him dead for a while. But I digress. Anyway, uh, let's move <laughs> on to the next story. Uh, it's that Nightwing story that I, uh, that I mentioned. Uh, Cameras Johnson writing, penciled by Leosa McKizzy inked by Trevor Scott, colored by Andrew Dollhouse. It's a fun story. The art is really spectacular. I think colors especially. There's a few different palettes. It's it's Batwing going after uh, Riddler, or Nightwing, uh, yeah, Batwing going after Riddler. And uh, it kind of shows Luke Fox's intelligence here. He's able to solve the, um, the riddles that the Riddler is posing to him. And in the Riddler's own words, faster than Batman's able to solve them, 
So I don't know if this is just they decided to tell this you know one up story about Luke Fox bowing to remind us how smart he really is and how um, kind of formidable he is as a fighter. He ends up taking on Killer Croc and then makes a deal with Croc and uh, ends up actually sicking Croc on the Riddler. So uh, there's not a lot of of huge substance here. Um, but it is a fun story and the art is really great. And, and other than reminding us how smart and formidable Batwing is, I'm not sure what the point of this story is, but I'm glad it's here because it's it, like the first thing I thought when I saw the first page, I'm like, Oh my God, it's night. It's, it's Batwing, right? It's been a while since I've seen Luke Fox, like fully decked out as Batwing. And I did enjoy that series, especially when Luke Fox took over uh, and Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray were writing it. And I was like, oh, it's great to see Batwing back in costume and working with Oracle. So uh, I did I did enjoy the story. I just wonder about any sort of long-term implications that it, it might have. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, you said it was Batwing and I, <laughs> I have to admit, I read this and I, I just saw, I just saw Batman. I just, I assumed it was a bat. I thought it was Jace's a Batman story and I, but you're absolutely right. It's a Batwing, and I, I'm just reading it. You know, I, I just read Batman whenever. Yeah, but yeah, I know it's a Batwing story. But yeah, but I, I agree with you. I, I think it's the. I have I, I would say the same thing as you that I thought this was almost a pointless story. But then that's a little bit unfair because there's a lot of there's virtually every Batman story in Batman Black and White is a pointless Batman story because it doesn't seem to have a longer narrative. It doesn't seem, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't reveal much. At least here, it's nice to have a Batwing. It's, it is nice to have, frankly, a Jace story just to get more background on him because we need to build up his character, build up well, his no, this is Luke. Well, that's, no, that, so this Luke is, is Batwing. Yeah, so that's, that's the whole point. It's Batwing, which is Luke, not Luke. Tim or Jace, whatever he goes oh, yeah. by, who's the next Batman. <laughs> Sorry, because that's, that's Luke. Yeah, that's the first thing. Like, I saw the costume. I'm like, hey, isn't that Batwing? And then when Oracle talks, the first thing she says is, Luke, you're right yeah. above the drop-in point. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so this is Luke Fox, who in the pages of Future State Gotham has apparently given up the Batwing identity and <sighs> doesn't know that Jace or Tim is the next Batman. Yeah. So. Yeah, wondering why this story is here. Yeah. Is it because is Luke going to take up the mantle of Batwing again, or is it just to remind us, just to keep the trademark? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, and yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's I mean the the Fox family sure is is amazing. I mean they're what a Batman legacy. I mean, you know, the true Batman legacy has nothing to do with Bruce Wayne or any of his wards, but no, it's all Lucius Fox. I mean, we, you and I had a debate about Lucius Fox earlier in this, uh, in this uh, podcast, and it's clear that, uh, you know, between Luke Fox and Tim slash Jace Fox, we got Batwing and we got the new Batman. And why did we need this story? I don't really know. I, I will say this. I, I thought it was very forced... As a story, I think the major weakness is that there is no motivation for Killer Croc. Killer Croc, his, he changed his allegiances for no reason whatsoever that I could see. He was working for Riddler, and then for whatever reason, he got pissed off at the Riddler and then decided to change his mind and then attack the Riddler. Uh, and that was only when he realized he was going to get his ass kicked by Batwing. Um, this is really, as a story, this, this wasn't very good, to be blunt. Uh, other than establishing the fact that, sure, okay, you know, 
you know, Luke Fox can is very smart and intelligent and he can decipher a riddle. Well, so could the reader. I mean, even I figured out the one. Usually, full disclosure, <laughs> most of the Batman riddles I can never figure out. <laughs> I always got to jump ahead to be told what the answer is because I don't have the patience to figure them out myself. These this I, these ones I actually figured out on my own, which which tells me that, uh, uh, well, I'm, I, I should watch what I say. I, I, I just thought that this story maybe... I thought this was definitely a filler story. This was a filler story. I love Batwing, by the way. I have all the issues. I, 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 Jimmy Palmiotti wrote wrote most of the entire run, the original Batwing, which which was took place in in the setting in Africa, I think it was, and then then Luke Fox became Batwing. I got all those issues. I love it. So I love the character. Uh, it's good to see him again. But like you, I'm a little bit confused. What's DC trying to say? Are we gonna get? Are we gonna keep Batwing? Are we gonna have Batwing fighting alongside his? His his older brother Jace is Batman, Batwing v Batman as partners. I don't know what are they teasing here, but it's definitely it it piques my interest as to what what the future might hold. Yep, agreed. Uh, the next story is that Tim Drake story, as I mentioned. Uh, apparently, there's somebody who's been going around kidnapping ki- kids. Like, wait, isn't this the Nightwing storyline? Yeah, apparently very, uh, <laughs> very similar. So uh, there's somebody called the Chaos Monster, which makes his first appearance in this issue and actually uh, kidnaps Tim's friend Bernard. Um, so again, uh, Megan Fitzsimmons, who wrote this, uh, she's clearly pulling in her her love and knowledge of Tim Drake's uh, run as Robin because Bernard Dowd was last seen in Robin Volume 2, Number 140, uh, we're told by the uh, by the editor and little editor's note there. So um, again, you know, just like the future state Robin eternal storyline, Megan Fitzsimmons knowledge of Tim Drake as Robin and her love for Tim Drake of, uh, as Robin is very clear here. Um, but there's more going on in the subtext bes- besides of the story, besides just Tim Drake trying to solve this mystery. Uh, he's having a, a little bit of a tough time and, and maybe that's why he reached out to somebody from his past um, and met up with Bernard uh, Dowd to kind of remember who he used to be. And Bernard even sort of, um, he mentions that, he refers to that. He, he he talks about how Tim Drake was always the smartest and most driven person in the class because when he asks Tim what he's doing, he, he doesn't really have, you know, an answer. He, he He's not sure. And, and Bernard is sort of uh, surprised by that. And, and Tim puts it in his terms which is, you know, computers. And he, he says, yeah, it's like my programs program has been corrupted and it has been for a while. And I, I'm not sure how to fix it. Um, and before they can continue the com- conversation, that's when the chaos monster shows up, knocks out Tim Drake and kidnaps Bernard. So what's going on with this, these kidnappings, what's going on with Tim Drake? Again, I'll ask the question is, does this um, lead into a Tim Drake Robin series? Uh, because again, Damien's off the table right now, and that's re- referenced as well early on uh, on the first page when uh, Tim Drake's talking to Oracle, and she said, I don't even know what to call you. You know, Are you going by a code name? I'm not going to call you Drake, which, thank God, because that was when I heard he was getting a new code name in the pages of Young Justice from Brian Michael Bendis, I was worried because I don't trust Bendis to come up with good names for characters, i.e. Rogolzar. Uh, <laughs> but calling him Drake... So for those not familiar, I guess that's the uh, the proper term for a male duck. 
and apparently they can be quite aggressive. So <laughs> I'm sorry, that just is a dumb name. Drake? Yeah. All I can think of is Drake's Coffee Cakes. You're going to name your superhero after yeah. a coffee cake? It was no. also the name of the Earth 3 count. It was Earth 3 counterpart. Yeah. Yeah. In, exactly. in Young Justice is what it was. Yeah. yeah. Just just a terrible name. Just either call him Robin or Red Robin. Like if I had my if I had my way, he would be Robin and Damien would be dead, but that's another, <laughs> you know, that's another podcast altogether. But yeah, go he can go back to being Red Robin. I'm fine with that. Um, but not definitely not Drake. And so I'm glad Oracle, Barbara Gordon and I agree on that. Uh, but overall, I enjoyed the story. I thought the art by Bell and Ortega was really solid. And, uh, you know, when I first started reading Batman, Dick, I mean, not to date myself, but Dick Grayson was Robin, but not for very long. Um, he, it was only a couple of years and he, he moved away and uh, Teen Titans and then Tim Drake or uh, Jason Todd rather showed up. And, you know, we just talked about his whole journey. Um, but for the majority of my comic reading life uh, while I was in, high school and college, it was Tim Drake. I do kind of consider him the Robin that I enjoyed the most. Um, and I might be a little older. I think most Tim Drake fans, most people that say, yeah, Tim Drake's my Robin or tend to be a little younger than me. Um, but it's, <laughs> I don't know anybody who says, oh, Jason Todd was my Robin just because he, like you said, he wasn't very likable. So it's kind of, kind of strange. So I, I kind of lumped myself in and uh, with those younger people, people that are like about 10 years younger than me that consider Tim Drake their Robin. Tim Drake is, is the Robin, is the character that I enjoyed the most. He, you know, he found out who Batman was on his own. He was really smart, maybe smarter than Batman himself as he was written sometimes. And he had that long running series um, that I think was spectacular. Most of it with Tom Grummet art. That was amazing. So, you know, if we're going to get Tim Drake in a Robin story being called Robin and sort of searching for himself i'm i'm all for it what i what i hope doesn't happen is at the end of this i hope he doesn't get some new costume and some other lame code name um because that maybe that's the whole point of the series right because you can't have him be robin because damien's robin but i i sort of feel like megan fitzsimmons loves tim drake enough that that won't be the case <laughs> but i guess yeah. we'll see uh anyway well, what did you think of this one rocky uh well i liked it i i one of the reasons why I liked it is that it identified one of the uh, one of the one of the questions that I, I think many of us readers have. At least I certainly do. And and dare I be arrogant enough to suggest that other readers might have similar questions that I have. That you know, Tim Drake sort of disappeared. He he originally was killed. We thought he was killed, right? Like he remember remember that in it was in Rebirth where Tim Drake would he was he was on his way to Ivy State Ivy Town University. He was leaving the Batman. He was no longer going to be Robin. He was he was leaving the Bat fold, you know. And 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 all the members of the Bat family, especially Batman, were so proud of him because in many ways they all Batman thought that he was the most intelligent out of all of them. And he was he broke away from the life of being a Batman. He and, and he was he was being a member of the Batman family per se, a crime fighter. And he was doing his own thing. He was using his brilliance to genuinely move forward to help the world and go off to university and sky was sky's sky was the limit for for tim drake but then he was killed and there was that oh my god tim drake is dead and then then when he comes back we, we get him in future state right well first we got him in in young justice which was a disaster because bendis did you know didn't know what to do with him then bendis made it worse by confusing him with the young with with an earth three tim drake and then the drake fiasco was a horrible then, of course, we get future state Tim Drake where he's immortal. He becomes immortal. 
he becomes doused in, in Lazarus liquid in future state. And he be, we know that he ultimately becomes immortal. We're not in future state yet. This is pre-future state. We know that, that Tim Drake is ultimately going to be doused with Lazarus liquid and become essentially immortal. But here he is pre-future state and he's trying to find his way. He's And he's questioning himself. He's now second guessing himself. Apparently he doesn't want to go to university anymore. Well, if he doesn't want to go to university, what does he actually want to do? And this is a, this is a guy who is, he's trying to find himself again. He's second guessing himself. Does he want to go to university? Doesn't he? Uh, and that's, and, and as you alluded to, uh, Chase, that's why he wanted, he wants to talk to his friend, Bernard, and, and to try to get a handle on things. So in a way, he's trying to, He's got questions about his own life. He's uncertain as to what his future might hold, which is a question that a lot of young adults have nowadays. So this is timely. And in this particular world right now, millennials are asking themselves a lot of questions. And so is Tim Drake here. So this is very well played. I think it, it works very well. And ultimately, I, I agree with you that the uh, the writing here is quite good. I, I mean, I, I got to give credit to Fitzpatrick and Megan Fitzpatrick. She does a good job. Uh, Belen Ortega on the, as the art does a very good job. I'm, I'm interested in what choices Tim Drake is going to make because we need to get to know Tim Drake again because, you know, he's back in full force and now he's back. And is he going to remain a member of the Bat family? Well, he is wearing the Robin suit, isn't he? And he doesn't want to be called Tim. He doesn't want to be called Drake. So he's wearing something with an R on the chest and he's, and he's talking to a, a person named Oracle. So it certainly seems like this guy wants to be Robin. If something looks and quacks like a duck, let's call it a robin, all right? <laughs> I mean, come on. So I, I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, Tim Drake is a lot of people's favorite robin. Mine is Damien because I like the narcissistic little bastard. But Tim Drake, there's something about Tim Drake that he's the he's the common man's robin. There's a reason why people like him. And this story by Megan Fitzmartin just sort of drives home why that's the case. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the best thing about her writing is, is you know, she clearly has love for, for Tim Drake. So that yeah, definitely definitely works. Uh, all right. Well, moving on to the last story. You know, I mentioned it up top. It's the Matthew Rosenberg grifter story, the long con. This is the next to last or penultimate part of that story. And we see grifter months ago. The story starts off talking to somebody and saying, yeah, Leviathan approached me about working for them. And so clearly this is tying in with uh, Leviathan. There's some bigger mystery that goes to the story of the long con. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg continues to give us the, the best characterization of Cole Cash or Grifter that we've had. Um, and he, he outright says it, right? He has one of the characters say it in the, uh, in the issue, the way that Matthew Rosenberg himself sees Grifter and the way he portrays him. Um, so I think her name's Athena, right? That's the head of security for uh, Wayne Enterprises under Lucius Fox. And she says, he seems as dumb as a bit, as a bag of hammers, but he's yeah. really good at this. That's a DB. That's Chance Adibi. In Adidi, that's right. Chance. That's Adibi. what I was yeah. thinking, not Athena. Yeah, Chance. Um, yeah, so I love that. that. That's exactly the way Matthew Rosenberg writes Grifter. He seems as dumb as a bag of hammers, but he's really good at this. So, you know, he comes across as not knowing what he's doing or flying by the seat of his pants, but it's clear that everything that's happened up to this point, for the most part, he has sort of expected. Um, 
and he's been preparing for, and he's maneuvered uh, things in uh, around in place to do whatever it is that he's trying to do. Now, he's not a hundred. He's not Batman, right? So as much as he can plan and try, no, no, he's, he's not. not <laughs> so there's a few things that don't go quite his way, and when he he tries through, so he hires Deathstroke to basically kick his ass. So Deathstroke and Grifter are fighting. Um, and the reason that that's being done is because Grifter knows that uh, Batman hates Deathstroke and Batman hates Grifter. So Batman will definitely show up to a Deathstroke-Grifter fight and try to capture them both. And that's the way that Grifter's then going to capture Batman and keep and prevent Batman from interfering whatever it is that Grifter needs to do that's sort of the main goal of this con. But unbeknownst to Grifter, Bruce Wayne wants to show up at this party that Lucius Fox is having. And so when uh, he becomes aware of this Deathstroke Grifter fight, he calls in a pinch hitter to show up instead of going there himself. And so this little containment thing, whatever it is that Grifter has built, instead of capturing Batman and, and holding him overnight, like it, Grifter was hoping that would originally happen, he's actually captured Superman. <laughs> and Grifter... Uh as we know, is no match for Superman. And so he does what any sane person would do in this situation. And he runs and he tries to escape and tries to get teleported away from Superman. Uh, we also get a really cool zealot cameo because ultimately as Grifter's not able to get away from Superman, he has to call in some backup to make sure Lucius Fox is, uh, is okay uh, and is not killed by these Leviathan hitmen. And so, uh, he calls in his own his old friend Zealot, um, or Z rather. She prefers not to be called the Zealot. Uh, and so again, it's 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 establishing you know more Wildstorm characters in the in the Marvel or in the DC universe rather. And uh, it's Matthew Rosenberg giving wonderful characterization to Bag of Hammers or Grifter, if you prefer that nickname. Uh, the art by Ryan Benjamin is top notch, like it's been throughout. The pacing, the smart dialogue, the color work. Yeah, like this is my favorite story. The Grifter story has been my favorite story in, in Batman Urban Legends since the first issue. Like Zadarsky's is, is great as well. But if I have to pick one, I'm picking the Grifter story because not only is it accurate in terms of characterization for Grifter, um, but it's also he uh, uh, Rosenberg brings a level of humor to the story that is is just awesome. It reminds us that comics are fun and big and over the top. There's plenty of action, certainly in this one with Superman there trying to take out Grifter. And you can totally tell that Superman's holding back. You know, he doesn't see Grifter as an out and out villain. Um, and yeah, the characterization is just fantastic. E even the characterization at the end between uh, the interaction and interplay between Batman and, and Superman. Um, when Batman says, I got this, you know, uh, <laughs> so he's like, do, do you know where Grifter is? Well, not yet. Well, maybe Superman's, maybe we should work together. No. Superman's saying, you're underestimating him. He's dangerous. Like, you know what? I can handle Grifter. Go back to Metropolis, Clark. This is my problem. So, you know, again, it's it's perfect characterization for these characters. Great art. Yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Love this uh, long con story. And God, I mean, I've heard so many people, seen so many people on social media, on Twitter, saying they want a Matthew Rosenberg Grifter story, uh, Grifter uh, series. I really hope DC is listening because 
Matthew Rosenberg, he likes, you know, he'll, he'll put a like on that if you tweet it out and he'll retweet it. So it's clear that he has a desire to continue telling grifter stories. Oh. And, uh, I and so agree with you, man. Fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah there needs to be a, a, a Rosenberg grifter series, ongoing series, hundred percent. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg understands his character and you know what? Uh, and, and as a further compliment to Matthew, Matthew Rosenberg, I don't read a lot of Marvel titles, but I, you know, I, every time, you know, I, I've, I picked up a lot of his issues when he wrote, um, when he wrote Hawkeye, uh, in the, in the pay at Marvel. And, uh, when he wrote uh, winter soldier and Hawkeye in, in over at Marvel and he's just good at it. And he even wrote, I think he had a run on the Punisher too. That was quite good. And he's just, he, he's really good at, at imbuing humor, dark humor in these types of situations. And he's a perfect fit. He's a perfect fit for grifter. And, you know what? I laughed out loud. There's there's nothing better than when you're reading a comic and then you get to, you get to pause or spit out your drink because you're laughing. There's a scene here where Batman, you know, Superman, you know, Grifter's thinking he's captured Sup- Batman in this in this tank, and he's given this big rehearsed speech to Batman about you know how you're not going to escape from this tank. You've only got so many hours of air. Blah blah blah. And then of course, all of a sudden, Smash one arm pops out of the tank. It's Superman. And you know that he clearly, you know, he obviously screwed up as Grifter often does. And I love the line by Superman, uh, as Superman says, as he sighs and says, every time I come to Gotham, it's something. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just like, you can, especially for us longtime readers, because we, for longtime readers of Batman, all of us know that Batman can't stand when another superhero comes to Gotham. It's my city. I'll protect it. Stay the hell out. And Batman feels particularly sensitive when Superman crops in on Mr. Earth. Let's face it. Superman can make Batman look stupid, right? Batman would have been trapped in that tank for longer than Superman was. We can all agree on that. Batman would have found a way to escape, but Superman, you know, Superman, let's face it. Superman is very helpful, but Batman always refuses to admit that. And it's it's really great here how Superman is used here, but Superman is an afterthought in this story, and even Grifter gets the best of Superman. He keeps Superman at bay because he always he's creating as Superman is chasing Grifter. Grifter is creating is putting is intentionally putting other lives in danger, knowing that they're not really in danger. That it'll distract Superman to save these other lives. So so Grifter gets closer and closer, and he's he's contacting the Zealot Z to ultimately protect. Uh, Lucius Fox and to protect uh, Chance Adibi at the uh, at the at the at the party that they're at, where that Bruce Wayne is at, and the dialogue here is just spot on. It's so funny. It's so entertaining. It's so well done. Uh, the 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 interaction between Deathstroke, <laughs> Deathstroke, and uh, and the Grifter is so good. You know the the moment Superman breaks out of that that's that 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 propane tank or whatever the hell he's in, you know, Deathstroke saying, I'm out of here. I don't get paid enough for this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just so well done. It's really great. I love the interaction. Chance, Chance is talking with Lucius and Lucius wants to know how she found out all this information and how does she know that, that how does she know that, that uh, Grifter, you know, stole her laptop or got information off her laptop. Of course they slept together in the previous issue. She doesn't want to let Lucius Fox know that. 
So they're they're dancing around the obvious, and just this just, this is like a this is like a comedic, but yet kind of serious and interesting James Bond comic book. It's fun. This is fun, and in fact, I actually I I collect Dynamite's James Bond uh, stories, uh, the comic book James Bond written by Dynamite, and I wish it was as entertaining as this. It's some of it's pretty good. Don't get me wrong, but this to me. My God, this is this is what I want espionage, an espionage comic book to be like. Funny, entertaining, and action-packed. This has this has all the bells and whistles. And uh yeah, I mean, and let me just say this. For fans of Wild the Wildstorm universe, we got Marlowe, we got the Zealot, we we got uh we, we got uh the Grifter. This is the Wildstorm universe coming into the DC universe full bore here, and this is something that was unanticipated. So I think with this new DC Omniverse, we might be getting more of the Wildstorm Universe characters coming in here. And this is a good thing because those are very interesting characters. The Zealot Z is a particularly interesting character. So yeah, yeah. I agree. Not 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 enough of the, not. And I don't understand. These are good characters. I don't understand why they've had such a hard time integrating them into the DC Universe overall. So yeah, no, I uh, hear you. Yeah. Anyway, there are some other books that uh, came out this week that we're not going to cover because we're all pushing three hours here. Uh, but just to remind everybody, we've got the DC Pride number one, uh, which I, I would have liked to talk about, but that's another 80-page <laughs> giant with, uh, what, two, four, six, eight, nine stories in it, and we just don't have time to, to cover it all here. Uh, but that is out there, uh, and maybe if we have time, we'll do a, a separate episode on that. Uh, we also have the next to last issue of American Vampire. And when I say the last, I mean the fine this is supposed to be the final story in the American Vampire universe. I think I mistakenly said issue eight was the last one, and I was disappointed that I hadn't read it. I've started reading American Vampire from the first volume. I'm hoping to get all caught up uh, and read the entire American Vampire storyline uh, and series by the time issue 10 comes out so we can talk about issue 10 when it drops. But issue nine is out this week, American Vampire number 1976 or rather American Vampire 1976 number nine from Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque. Uh, there's also Far Sector number 12, which wraps up that uh, maxi series with Joe Mullen. Uh, and same thing, uh, neither Rocky or, not, or I are caught up on it. Uh, I think I've only read the first three issues. So that's something I'm going to try to read and we'll do a spotlight on that separately uh, later on down the line, because uh, again, just too many books this week to, to fit it all into this episode. So, uh, again, we, we hope you all uh, enjoyed this. We appreciate your support. Anything you want to plug, Rocky, that uh, is coming out this week? Uh, well, I am going to say I'll mention the Far Sector. Uh, the Far Sector character of Joe Mulane, uh, Joe Mulane, who is the Green Lantern, she is a member of the LGBT community that it will be revealed at the end of Far Sector number 12 and that she's also she also has a full uh, one-page spread in the pages of... Uh, DC Pride. And so that's very interesting. And for, you know, again, it is DC Pride week, so we should give a call out to all uh, LGBTQ characters and to celebrate that uh, this this week, or I guess it's this entire month. And yeah, I've got, uh, I did read, uh, you know, having read DC Pride, I can say that the, the I, I think that it's quite clear, by the way, that the external character, external I don't know if I'm saying that right. Extrano, extrano character who is the first gay character introduced in DC Comics. He's the he's basically DC's new Doctor Strange. 
He's a character that appears in DC Pride. I think Speculator Alert, pick up DC Pride, people. Uh, he's definitely going to be a character that we're going to be seeing more of in the DC Universe because he's got, I mean, he looks like Doctor Strange. I mean, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, he looks, he looks wildly different. So that's not his first appearance. He looks wildly different than he's looked in the past. So yeah. I don't know what that's about. They're, they're, um, they're treating him a lot more seriously. He's, he's definitely more mature. He's more, he's definitely, he's, he's treated and written more like a seasoned hero here. There's no question about it that you can just tell when you read his, uh, his portrayal in DC Pride, they're, they're really, they're elevating him. He's being elevated here. And I think that's a good thing. Cause quite frankly, by the way, I, I think it's, it's almost, it's such an obvious ripoff of Doctor Strange. It's ridiculous. I mean, even even the costume I thought was I think fairly was in, you know oddly enough similar in many ways. But in any event, uh, DC Pride is a surprisingly uh, interesting book. And by the way, uh, if those of you who like G GLQ, you might have heard during the DC uh, Round Robin there was a voting for a Justice League queer, and everybody thought some people thought that was kind of a joke. You and I joked about it. You know, why would people get together just because they're queer and form a superhero team? It's a little bit silly. Well, this was actually during a in the Pride DC Pride. It's during a, a Pride parade where where bad guys attack a Pride parade, and pr of course. Uh, you know, LGBTQ members of the superhero community happen to be present and they they jokingly refer to themselves as JLQ while they take down the bad guys. And so that's where the JLQ comes from. So it's a little bit more justified and not as silly as maybe it maybe first sounded. So in any event, it's actually well worth picking up, I thought. It was, it was a nice range and, and a nice sort of snapshot of uh, LGBTQ uh, members in the uh, DC superhero community. Yeah, that Extrano thing is pretty interesting to me because he has his his look has evolved over the. This isn't the first time shown up. So he he appeared way back in the event in 1988 called Millennium. Um, that's where he first showed up, and yeah, Joe Staten art very stylized, had a long nose and like a handlebar mustache and kind of this. Uh, he he was very he was depicted as having a much darker complexion. I think he's Brazilian or something like that. Definitely from somewhere in South America. Uh, and he spoke with an accent. Now he's he's much more I don't know anglicized here. I don't know that I like that. Um, but yeah, could could be that his they're raising his profile for him to show up in in some some other things. So yeah, like I said, hopefully Rock and I are going to have time to do a, a separate episode on the the DC Pride, and we'll have a, a separate episode reviewing all twelve of the uh, Far Sector uh, books. You know, as a as a complete series, as a complete story. Uh, we'll let you know on that. As far as other things I have coming up, man, so many it's hard to mention. Big, uh, big news earlier this week. Uh, yesterday, there's um, an interview with the creative team for uh, Slow City Blues, which is uh, a creator-owned comic that's not only launching, the comic itself is launching a new platform called Zoop, uh, which is basically a platform that does all the heavy lifting for the creators so they have the freedom to just create. Uh, so there is uh, another episode out today, Tuesday, as this is being released, an interview with the CEO of Zoop where he explains exactly what they're offering for creators. Um, and, and maybe what I'll say here, go listen to the episode, but maybe what I'll say here, you want to talk about putting your money where your mouth is. This company, Zoop, who basically will run the crowdfunding campaign and allow a creator to just create, they get paid on the back end, which means 
if the campaign is not successful, because it's like Kickstarter, you know, it's all or nothing. If the campaign is not successful, if Zoop as a platform doesn't get your project funded, they don't get paid. So they are very invested in getting your project, if you're uh, an aspiring comic creator, over the line and making sure now they're small and they're not, accept, you know, they're not just ex accepting everybody right now. Anybody who wants to run a crowdfunding campaign, they're going to vet you and make sure that your project is worth their time for exactly that reason, uh, because they don't get paid unless the the, uh, the project is fully funded. So anyway, go check out that episode. Check out the episode from yesterday about Slow City Blues. Uh, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, you probably have a few hours left. There are a lot of Slow City Blues uh, rewards and discounts for the first 48 hours. There are, and some, some like the David Finch uh, version uh, or Virgin cover, I think, is only available for the first 48 hours. So definitely go and check it out. Zoop.gg or wearezoop.com uh, and go and, and check that out. Uh, also have a Kickstarter spotlight this week coming uh, for a, a project called Game of Doubles on, on Kickstarter. And uh, we still have uh, big, big, big news coming uh, later this year, August 1st. We've got a big event planned, and it's very possible that that event is going to coincide with Terrificon, the best comic-centric comic convention in all of the United States. It happens at the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Most likely I'm going to be there. I'll know for sure by this time next week. Uh, Trevor, Dark Knight Nation, uh, is also going to be there selling copies of his project, uh, Area 51, the Helix Project. And uh, if at all possible, if we can twist this Canadian guy's arm, he may be there as well. Uh, I want to so try. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm the, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, we appreciate your support. Pay attention. I'm going to have more announcements uh, about that big event on August 1st where there's going to be some big names involved. Uh, Nicholas Scott, Gail Simone, Scott Snyder. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a huge event and hopefully coincide with uh, Terrificon at the Mohegan Sun. So, again, we really appreciate everybody listening, especially for a marathon episode like this. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. All right. See you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.